Hey there, Shiro listeners, Saturn Dave here, reminding you that you must play Sega Saturn, and that it's contributions from listeners like you that help keep this and our other shows hosted and available on demand. In addition to our website, SegaSaturnShiro.com, where you can find all of the most up-to-date news and information from around the Sega Saturn scene. If you'd like to show your support and gain access to several perks, visit Patreon.com slash ShiroMediaGroup to become a Patreon supporter. If a monthly donation isn't possible, no worries. We still value your support in liking and sharing our content on social media and joining our Discord community to become a part of the Saturn conversation. Thank you for being a loyal listener and a part of this great community. And as always, Hey everyone, this is Saturn Dave, and today I'm joined with Pat, and we have a special guest who hails from the Norwegian wood, a man who has had his hands in numerous gaming pies from Funcom to HG101 to VGMDB to DF Retro to Limited Run and several others in between. We're talking with Audi Sorley today. Hey Audi, thanks for joining us today, and how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty happy to be here finally. I saw you guys for the first time in person that purge feels like a year ago awesome. now it's only like two weeks right right it was recent it was pretty recent which uh is scary to me to think about but yeah that was a real fun time so we were like let's keep the fun rolling and the good times roll your panel was excellent at save the best for last right because you guys went i think you guys went last and um i went to quite a few panels and yours was easily the funniest oh thanks i had no idea that you were the comic that you are i mean i saw your bubsy video Mm. and of course you like kept that one very straight but i mean you know you were just dropping jokes left and right on your panel which was it was a lot of fun yeah yeah we were we were absolutely last uh we were the absolute (laughs) last panel of perch uh people want to go home and when they see my face before we want to go home, that's a bad time. That's so bad. I knew that was kind of just like, I have to do something to uh, keep this interesting. Because, I mean, it wasn't a lot of people there. I was surprised, you know. Mm-hmm. I oh, figured yeah. most people had kind of left by, right. what was it? It was like 4.15 on mm-hmm. Sunday uh, p.m. Not mm-hmm. that yeah. Uh, and uh, but we filled up a good room. You guys were there. And, unfortunately uh, yeah. actually it was i actually couldn't make it unfortunately uh, i was up i was at the booth because we we had actually an incident before that day like the day before where uh dave dave and and uh, pandemonium went to a panel mm. and they couldn't get and then we left for five seconds to grab something and meet them up to grab something and they locked us out of the hall so i didn't want to risk that again especially with uh adam's uh adam's famous uh pluto there so i had to stay oh, just okay. in case they didn't lock us out there at least yeah, I caught it. And, you know, very much the same as uh, Shiro was like, we had to go like first on Saturday. Yeah. And they had us up against AVGN and they mm. had us up against Adam Korolik. And it was like, you know, we share like the same audience with Adam Korolik. So it was like, we thought nobody was coming to our panel. And actually nobody was there up until like a minute before the panel. And we were like shitting bricks, honestly. And then they let everybody. Oh, well, that's because they, they have them in a staging room. They have them in a staging room. Yeah. So then they let everybody in and we're like, okay, we can breathe easy remember my I, panel too was kind of just like eh, i don't think anyone's coming I don't think that's, that's that's the best case scenario right and then uh, people started streaming in so so you were doing plumbers don't wear ties i sure was what an ambitious project you take know? your damn clothes off 
because you guys were like, we have to sell this. At the end of the day, we have to sell this thing. And I think that's, uh, you know, I think that is an interesting story. It's just kind of like most people when they or most developers, if they get a re-release of some kind, it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, remake Burning Rangers. So I'm going to sure. they get this dream project. Mm -hmm. And in a way, this was a dream project of mine because I'm only associated with bad games, it looks like, in the industry, <laughs> uh, which is fair, I guess. Well, bad and games. Bad's only in the eye of the beholder, to be yeah, honest. That's right. True. Right. That's that's why I tell my dad too when he's disappointed me. I look and... at I look at I look at it as avant garde. Yeah, I I see it as forward thinking. Exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, with plumbers, it was like, you know, I remember I was hired by Limited Run, not specifically for this project, but it was one of the ones that was kind of airmarked towards me because uh, they had been looking at kind of getting me into the family for a couple of years, I'd say. Hmm. And plumbers was always kind of the one thing I came back to is like, well, if you worked on it, what would you do? And it's like, well, I would do everything I could. I would just, I would make it the most comprehensive remastering and documentation I could ever do on it. Uh, and that's kind of what we did. So yeah. it was an interesting challenge. It's an interesting story. Uh, and I think that panel did absolutely nothing to show that. Oh, you think so? <laughs> I mean, I think I think it was a good panel, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. again, though, yeah, it's like, how do you even begin to show that? <laughs> you know, like, people just need to play it Yeah. at the end of the day. Like, they just need to play it and experience it. It's kind of a time capsule, really. And uh, VV did a great job on the UI, you know? Oh, yeah, the Win95. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And my wife for reference. It really, it's the whole package together. Exactly. You know what I mean? Um, maybe it is subjectively a bad game, but I mean, people are going to find things to enjoy about it. But I just thought, wow, that was a very ambitious project. Like, I'm sure a lot of people would not want to have had to do that. <laughs> but you took it on. Yeah, no shame in, you know, the worst game getting the greatest remaster is a great tagline. And it's true. You know, it's just definitely that is how to approach anything you do. It's just with uh, gusto and pride. Uh, mm -hmm. And the product, I think, sings to that. And uh, one thing I didn't mention at the panel was that uh, you know, I worked in Japan for f quite a few years, and right. uh, in that, I worked with a lot of visual novels. And the one mm -hmm. I worked on quite extensively was this re-release of Clanad, which is also a big anime and things like this. Ooh, I love Clanad. Mm. That's pretty yeah. awesome, actually. So I was a producer on the re-release that came out on, like, Switch and whatnot for that, and mm -hmm. uh, worked for years on it. And the thing about Clanad was we were really restricted. Um, understandably, it's from a big conglomerate and uh, who are we to change anything or do anything to that package uh, other than translate it. But I took a lot of the things I wanted to do with Clonad into Plumbers because essentially Plumbers is the first American produced visual novel. So it was something I was wanting to kind of put into the marketing somewhere. And then I was thinking about it. It's like, I shouldn't drag Clannad down into this. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't really mention it, but uh, yeah, that was one of my main inspirations. Just like all these things I wanted to do for this legendary Japanese visual novel. I did it for plumbers. Um, yeah. It's so. a shame that you weren't able to do that. It'd been really cool. They, they gave you free reign on that, but I know some of these Japanese companies are very sort of to the, was it uh, they keep it close in a way right yeah Very i mean, i up. understand it too um 
because I worked on a lot of games over there, um, and we were a Japanese company, but run from a U.S. office in L.A. So mm -hmm. I jumped time between L.A. and Tokyo, and the same conversation happened again and again. It's kind of like, why did we position ourselves to be like the people to do this? Because what do we really know? Like, who are we in the grand scheme of this genre of visual novels or Japanese indies and things like that? And it's like, yeah, I could sit there and blabber about how much I played visual novels when I was young, which is true. But it's like culturally, there's a lot of, especially with like clad and whatnot. It's a lot of things that mm. refers to that I just wasn't part of. So I understand mm. that their hesitation on it is like, why? We can't just give it to you free reign because we don't know what <laughs> we don't know what your influences really are. And we're yeah, they don't want you to do a working design to add like Hillary Clinton jokes or. Something yeah, like right. that into there. So right. Right. I can see that, that hesitation. They might have had that same issue with working designs and giving that free reign or a company or somebody that worked for it or they know the story of that. So maybe that might be a hesitation, but I'm surprised they didn't be like, oh, you can like at least do interviews or like get people to talk about yeah. the game or maybe like do like, you know how they do the cute like uh because I know some originals they have like the oh the voice actor does a cute little line or it's like, oh hey, thank you for playing the game. Or whatever. There's so much history behind any, even one of my favorite pastimes, one of my favorite machines that can be seen on my uh, screen name is PC98, NEC PC98. And I, in my free time, I spent so much time with developers from that era, uh, mm -hmm. documenting them and just talking to them, learning from them, because I just, I love that Wild West um, era of gaming that they had with the PC88 and 98. And all that history, it's really sad now because, you know, I had drinks with those guys, so I hung out with them. And, uh, you know, I can think off, offhand, it's like four, four of them have passed since uh, I worked over yeah. there. It's just like that history is dying. And yes. nothing's been done to document it. Um, mm -hmm. one, of, one of my dearest friends who passed was Umamoto Ryu. And he was the composer of Eve Burst Error and Desire. And these these games are on Saturn as well. Um, yeah, he's an excellent composer. You know. Just, his, I, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. His music is just amazing. He's one of the greatest composers of all time. And he was one of my best friends. Um, and we worked together extensively up until his passing. I spoke to him, I think, a week before he passed. Yeah, that was a crazy story about how you guys came together, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, the emails and everything. Yeah. And then before you know it, you know, his, his family's passing his estate onto you. That's crazy. Like, yeah, that was just insane. I still have all this stuff. And it's uh, I say every year that I'm going to go through it and sort it. But it's, uh, it's a hard topic for me. But I just sure. remember that, like, <clears throat> when when I spoke to him, for example, and just all the history and he he was not interested in having any documentation on it. He was just like, I'm not mm -hmm. an interesting person. Uh, you know, my music, uh, I hope people remember my music, but they don't need to remember me. And I was flabbergasted. I understand him. But I was, I was so frustrated sometimes hanging out with him. Cause it's like these stories that I'm hearing are gonna, they're gonna wither. They're gonna go away. And is that just like a Buddhist thing? Like I find culturally that that happens yeah. a lot, at least in my experience, I've encountered a few Japanese developers who are like, it doesn't matter. It's not important. Why are you asking about this? Yes. Yeah. You know? uh, he was, the, uh, he was very dedicated to Buddhism. Uh, yeah. Buddhism and 
um yeah, a lot of his works reflected that mm-hmm. yeah but it was very hard to get him to he he, he loved talking uh, mm-hmm. he loved teaching and uh he was an incredible storyteller of that sense but mm-hmm. the moment you kind of show this interest of well i want more people to know about this because i've learned so much from you and this is very interesting mm-hmm. um it, it, it would shut off and they just be like nah this don't worry about that uh how's your cat it's like that was always his kind of go-to it's like my cat died two years ago <laughs> it's like oh, dude right. i don't it's it's like my cat is not important in the situation i just want to know I, I need I want to know what's going on and like why and like how you went about doing this. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's there's the, the humblety thing about it, you know? It's there's an like age a... thing too cuz Audi's young and it, to you it's like this is your idol, right? And and he is at an age where he's probably asking a lot of existential questions and thinking like what what really matters, you know? Like personal relationships, stuff like that, you know. I think it might have been an age difference thing, you know? was that but it was also it was it was very complicated he came from i think he had a lot of it's been a while since i spoke about him but it's i think he had a lot of challenges in terms of accepting himself and also his family his mother was very accepting of what he did but i think his father mm. and I, I got to know his father a lot after his passing uh, and i kind of saw the good and the bad in the sense of what he had gone through, uh, because uh, Imamoto's dad basically kind of took me into the family as well after Ryu's dead, mm-hmm. uh, and it was very uh, strange. Uh, uh, it was a cultural clash there, to say the least. Right, uh, but he was a very, very kind man, and mm-hmm. I think I think since he has passed, unfortunately, I I kind of lost contact with him, and so this is. The rest of his family mm-hmm. um but there was certainly a lot of things in Imamoto's life that seemed to have come from rebellion and kind of uh, this idea of finding his own place because his dad ran a, a fish a fishery thing i forget what it was but it was something to do like with a marina like, no not marina but like he um clean fish or something oh okay. they ran some sort of yeah uh kind of rustic family business mm-hmm. uh that he absolutely didn't want to do um and he ran away you know he ran away from home and mm-hmm. uh he lost contact with his dad for years i think that really impacted him mm-hmm. and when i got to know him they reconnected uh not due to me or anything but they reconnected and mm-hmm. i think that brought back some challenges in his life. Um, and that's when he kind of became very devout to Buddhism and kind of decides to just kind of chill out his life. Um, so he was a very interesting man, uh, incredible. There's lots of stories to tell about him. And mm-hmm. one day I'll find the platform for it. Definitely. Uh, I, I still keep in touch with his friends and I still keep in touch with his mother uh, and his brother. So there's always ideas. Uh, I know that there was a television company that wanted to do a documentary on him a couple of years ago, and uh, I was even flown over to kind of talk to them about that, and yeah. it never materialized. So 
maybe one day. Well, I mean, there's so many Japanese game music composition. I mean, there's so many greats out there that, and I don't feel like there's any form of media that like really shines on that, you know? And like, I think if anybody's qualified to do that, obviously it's you, you know, and, and a few, a few of your contemporaries, but, uh, yeah, it would be cool to have like a video or a coffee table book or something. Well, really, it would need to be a video so people can hear the music. Yeah, you know? that's the thing, right? Um, Maybe like a vinyl collection would be kind of neat. Like just like a collection yeah. of house works on vinyl and like a giant book thing with like maybe like a giant box set with like some stuff or even CDs. I don't know. Yeah, there was a CD series that came out called um, it was from Egg Music. It was called like Ryu Moto Volumes uh, and had like Xenon, uh, Eberst Error and Desire. Uh, mm -hmm. ground seed um and i spoke with hallie son about hallie's a, a mutual friend of ours right and um i spoke with him about doing like a vinyl set with like a booklet or something but i think now there are there are some issues in terms of rights i think something has been bought up and ah. um because there was like uh there was a re-interest not so much in well in him as well, but uh, you know was re-released and remade by uh, Spike Chunsoft a couple mm. of years ago. I think it even got a Western release. And after that, there was kind of this search for these legacy IPs uh, in the visual novel space, which never materialized for different reasons. But mm. I think Eberst Air and Desire these Seasware games got roped into that, so. Mm. Uh, I know Eve Bearster was remade, but it was never translated. Um, but yeah, so we'll see. I'm sure one day. I'm just curious before we move on and get too far away from it for a lot of our listeners, for a lot of our, you know, a lot of Saturn fans that may not know PC 98 was a excellent Japanese microcomputer basically. Right. Can it, how would you characterize the PC 98? Like if you were to describe it and its games, I got one, but I'll let, I'll let Audi go first. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, if you kind of get a comparison so people can kind of attach themselves to it, say the Amiga is kind mm. of like the Western equivalent, where it was a computer system um, and family system from NEC, who mm -hmm. famously also made uh, PC Engine mm -hmm. uh, and PC FX, the greatest console. The greatest. And, uh, you know, the PC 80, because. Prior in like 1978 and such, when the computers started coming to Japan, uh, they were coming from Apple primarily, the Apple II, uh, which had its own versions over there with a higher resolution to show characters because you need higher resolution to show yeah. Japanese characters. Uh, but it was extremely expensive. There was such limitations to what Apple could do with the Japanese support, and NEC. Uh, not really being NEC is an interesting company because they weren't they weren't a manufacturer of video games or computer hardware in that sense. They were just right. an electronics company that yeah. whenever they saw an avenue, uh, they would jump into it. And the PC eighty eight and its series was just kind of an opportunity for them, and they had the bandwidth to do basically what the ZX Spectrum and um, Commodore 64 was doing in consolidating a lot of the hardware down into smaller units and making it affordable. And that also opened the doors for um, programming languages to be more 
open to consumers and as such you start getting what's called dojin games uh, right. so you would get a lot of this kind of free form game design and very interesting usage of the hardware to do things it's not supposed to it's the same story that goes with like the commodore 64 where you have this kind of basic setup of a really nice uh sound synth chip and simple graphic processing but what people do with it is just incredible and they still keep doing it to this day right. uh, Commodore 64 is very much alive and with the pc 98 um you had this beautiful high resolution graphics capabilities which in return gave you especially in the visual novel genre gave you like these incredible looking adventure games uh including few burster and such that came out on saturn later right um so yeah the piece 98 was just this unfiltered uh and very interesting avenue into video gaming uh with a lot of experimentation that the console manufacturers would never allow in that mm -hmm. day and age but for example the rpg genre would never have existed without the pc 88 and 98 because things like black onyx uh, wizardry and these games they couldn't really operate on the consoles so the fact that people had this affordable computer and home in their homes now which much like in the west at the time uh they were made to do your checkings and financial reports and you know it was very salary man oriented mm -hmm. but culture-wise what happened was that salary men they would pick up these computers they'd have a day job and the last thing they want to go is do is go home and do their taxes and so there was this escapism that was even stronger in japan than it was in the west Mm -hmm. uh, and as such, you got these extremely expansive adventures, which often took in a sense this approach of bringing you into this vast world. So you right. have you have very intricate storylines, weaving characteristics and uh, plot points because it was very much angled towards giving very tired people a, a very detailed world to escape into. And something reminiscent of their childhoods where they had a lot more freedom to just explore and, you know. Yeah. Where do I feel that? Before all the responsibility. You know? <laughs> yeah. I kind of understand them now. Uh, but, you know, you hear about this a lot with Zelda. You know, like Miyamoto always mm -hmm. talks about how, like, Zelda was made as a game where you want people to share details and discoveries and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, you know, games in general, but Vishnu's especially on like piece 98 right they were very much of that same sense that you were supposed to not so much share because the, the things happen those games can't be shared uh but it was very much this idea of just kind of escaping into this world of familiar things but incredible stories mm -hmm. that very much in the 80s when the japanese bubble was very much full in effect you know people were working long hours and their lives were fairly mundane so the games were just what happens then is that your creativity just goes into overdrive mm -hmm. and it gets relegated a lot to just like eroge it's just erotic games and it's just an excuse to get the girls into certain situations but if mm -hmm. you actually read them and look into the genre's history um that's only a part of it and sometimes it can be exploitive but mm -hmm. other times it's just natural story progression between two people who have met and 
over time their relationship builds towards an intimate moment and it's mm-hmm. like well that's how stories are told and right. video games are no different as mm-hmm. a medium exactly. so it's it's like any hollywood movie would have that and i'm glad yeah. you brought that up because i think that's one of the most fascinating things i think about the pc engine is that it had you know all these variety of games and while a lot of people know it for these you know erotic quote-unquote erotic games mm. right. i think it's interesting in a way that that really blew up that sort of scene as well of of those sort of games that and that and toho that's one of my favorite things about that <laughs> is, the, is the toast but like i, I just wondering what, what are your thoughts on it do you think that you know there's like a double-edged sword with that or you know it just gets a bad rep for that you know there's a hentai game machine essentially uh i mean this is something i had to fight for my out my career right was because i was producing visual novels not and not always erotic in nature but sometimes very much so i worked on yeah, that of course and uh you know it's to me it's a much lesser offense than like gore and violence i'm from europe it should mm-hmm. be stated a big disclaimer I'm from europe we would so. have never known thank you <laughs> uh so mm-hmm. I, I i just don't see as long as it's done in such a way that yeah sometimes it does make sense it, sex can be used for humor as well i mean porky sure. exists and exactly. um it's just another facet of storytelling mm-hmm. so it just depends on how you use it much like violence much like humor much like terror much like you know anything it's a human response and an emotional response to things so i do get frustrated when i see articles even on like bigger websites still because even in the 2010s i was doing interviews where i was kind of harping on this that like are you actually reading these games or are you just googling like e-hentai you know mm-hmm. uh, galleries with this name because yeah you can find those screenshots but that's like me just searching up a van damme movie and seeing his butt and it's like yeah it's in that movie but that's it's not more the than that movie yeah it's, it's like, it's like it. there's it's, yeah and, and i think a lot of people <laughs> underestimate how small a fraction that was in that library because the pc engine library is huge it's just a lot of it's not documented because in the west at least because you know it's not really a, a popular thing out here versus us, but like the library is huge for the PC 98. It just, yeah, it was amazing. Gigantic. And tons of games. I mean, Visual Novels is the biggest genre just because it was the easiest mm-hmm. entry point for developers uh, in terms of like uh, generating text and images on screen with audiovisual like cues. Uh, still fairly intricate programming, but it's the easiest to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have a collection of like about 200 piece 98 software titles now. Um, and there's a ton of interesting actual action games and RPGs and such there that has never been talked about. I've been a guest on another podcast called um, uh, Axe of the Blood God, which is oh, a very yeah. good like RPG. Nadia Oxford uh, and yeah, a fantastic podcast and people. And they're always just surprised about this world of RPGs that they never even took into account because like right this is a podcast about RPGs and they're cataloging basically and it's like hold on there's, there's what now like there's <laughs> just like these hundreds of RPGs that were doing crazy shit right um in the, in the early 90s on the PC 98 
uh, just incredible stuff. Police Knots looks amazing on the PC ninety eight. By the way, like I think, it, I think it actually looks better than the Saturn version or the like. I I love that pixel art. It just looks sure it does. Oh, that's that's a mm. oh no, hands down the pixel art mm. on the PC ninety eight just looks so good. It's so sharp and it's very sharp. Uh, it's higher resolution than right the uh, yeah. Saturn version exactly. Um, yeah, same goes for like you know and the Burster and all those games. Um, you know, lower resolutions, kind of blurry images. They redid, you know, for uh, Saturn when mm. it came over. Yeah. So it has kind of slight different art and shading. Yeah, it's more like an anime art style. Same with Police Knots. Yeah, it's more anime. Like, they redid yeah. all of the drawing and everything like that. It looks great on, on Saturn, don't get me wrong. But, like, yeah, yeah. PC-98 yeah, PC is just, like, people have to just see it to believe it, you know? I'd love they really to do. play the fan translation of it if they ever make one oh, for that. Oh, that would be, be amazing, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they're working on that. There's also the 3DO version. Yeah, that's this is true. There's a 3DO version, too. I just have to get good at reading Japanese. I, I used to be better. <laughs> but, yeah, the, the, the same one, for me. Yeah. yeah, the one question I did have for the PC-98, would you happen to have any of the Toho games? Because I know those are really, really hard to find. And I have a couple. Uh, so I got to... I didn't work on, with Zune on a game, but I worked for a company called Sekai Project for a few years, and mm-hmm. and we were trying to work with Zune on officially localizing and uh, bringing over some of those titles. So I got to meet him a few times, um, and I have like I'm not a super Tohu guy, but I do have a couple physical copies. They're really flimsy. Mm. Uh, they're not all packaged the way you think. Yeah, uh, like it's like the classic, they're... like a like a plastic bag and a couple yeah, discs, right? That's exactly what it is. Uh, it's it's very dodgy, and um, but he was a nice guy, uh, and I, I just never I never got good at Tohu. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm bad at it too. I just I like I, I'm bad at it, but I enjoy the series, but. I get that though, but hopefully, uh, hopefully you're able to work something out because I think those games are pretty much the hardest in the series oh, to find. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, this is many years ago that I was in that circle of things. Um, I don't know what I I see Tohu games released all the time for consoles, and it's always like offshoots uh, because it has an open license. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I don't know what the official status anymore is on like actually bringing over the main lines. Um, but I think they are more readily available now that Piece 98 emulation is in a much different place than it was 10 years ago. So, I don't know. I don't know if the demand is even there anymore, the same way it yeah. was 10 years ago. So one question I did have is, um, so this is probably a, a really racy topic, but I think one of the biggest issues with preservation is that there's always has to be a hint of piracy to be able to accomplish that. And I thought, what are your thoughts on that? I know that like uh, and sort of I'm trying to think of a word. What are your thoughts on sort of the the idea of piracy as preservation, and if there's a way to we can ever get around that? Uh, I mean, we're trying to, right? Because my day job now is with Limited Run, and I'm the lead producer on Carbon Engine, which does preserve games officially um, mm. via licensing with these companies. So I, we just made like Jurassic Park collection, which has the Super Nintendo Game Boy NES and Sega Genesis games all collected. And that, let me just tell you, like getting that, something like that, which you think is just kind of like, well, wasn't that just a matter of getting approvals from NPC Universal? 
It's like, no, no, we have to discuss with Sega. We have to go back and talk with people who are no longer really in the video game industry and like, you know, all these things. It's really difficult. Oh, yeah. So if you want to. Like it. So it's not just a matter of just kind of finding the games or having the binaries for them is like 2% of that puzzle. Um, and I'm, I grew up with Commodore 64 uh, and Amiga. And even back then, in like the late 80s, when I started playing on those, at that time, even preservation was something. You know, you had to kind of go the piracy route because games got cracked and then preserved that way. And things were taken off the shelves or just, you know, removed from developer side back then, even with no regard to whether or not people enjoy the game, whether or not it was historically important, which every game is historically important, much like every movie is historically important, even Samurai Cop. And especially Samurai Cop, Samurai especially. Samurai Cop. I got stories about that movie, I can tell you. Uh, and, you know, it's... So, I, no, I don't think so, because there's a reluctance, from, not just from a legal standpoint. There's People have different emotional reasons for pulling their software. Um, and sometimes, maybe we have to respect it. Other times, it's based on very trivial things mm -hmm. um i've lived through it uh but i will say that the avenues now of preserving things officially is opening up rapidly thanks to people like you know frank Foley and jeremy parish and people who have been harping on this for decades that this is important stuff right and you're seeing it even with nintendo directly you know they put out that star fox 2 one Super Nintendo Classic and um, the Mega Drive minis. I think uh, one of them had like a remake of Tetris. Uh, I think, yeah, I think like Super Turrican Two, Super Turrican Two was on the uh, that was it the the analog analog uh, consoles for the Mega MD. I think so. The Super Turrican Two, so uh, Turrican is something I also worked on. I worked on everything as you can. You're a big Turrican fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I worked with extensively with Factor Five throughout my career, and um, that's a great company. Uh, yeah, uh, still around, still great people. Mm -hmm. And um, Turrican, you're talking about Super Turrican Director's Cut on the Super NT. Okay, that was a Super uh, NT. Okay, yeah. Uh, on the Mega Drive, you had Mega Turrican, uh, which okay. they eventually released Director's Cut of as well. So. But yeah, that's another case where they they kept all those uh, source codes on floppies. They re resurrected them and put out that director's cut, which was like only rumored for years, and then now it actually exists. Yeah. So mid '90s Sega games, a lot of them, especially the arcade games, are just licensing nightmares. Though, like one of my favorite games of all time is Top Skater. You know, those, a lot of, the, they're very bulky arcade units. Probably the boards are all worn out, right? Like, yeah. how do you even begin to preserve a game that has, like, Coca-Cola banners in it and Pennywise on the soundtrack? And it's yeah. like, there are so many hoops that you have to jump through to, to preserve that game if you're not just downloading it illegally, you know? And not to mention finding the demand for whoever wants to play that after all these years. Well, yeah. It's not about that. It's about pr preservation, though, right? You know, it's like yeah, so there's always I mean, somebody. Well, the demand comes from licensing side, you know, <laughs> that's whether or not Sega even 
sees an interest. Mm-hmm. And because, yeah, like I said, every game is important, but for them, it has to be a financial reason for them to go into their archives, prepare the source codes, uh, if they even have them, uh, or get the binaries over. And like you said, there's all these hoops, right? And there's something we experienced recently, too, with something like Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. There are, like, ads mm-hmm. in those games from that time that are no longer effective. Um, and it's like, what do you do? And especially with like Top Skater, you had these elements that the memories you have that is driven by that nostalgia of that package. Right. But if you start taking out the aspects of it, especially music related, like completely changes it. And that's mm-hmm. something, remember when they did those TMNT re-releases mm-hmm. uh, where they changed like Turtles in Time, uh, like GameCube and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, was part of Battle Nexus. And they, but they had to change the soundtracks due to oh, right. uh, uh, being based on that <laughs> theme song. Mm-hmm. And you've got this weird, like almost like AI generated, like uh, atmospheric exactly. music that didn't fit. It did not fit. And uh, it makes the game nearly unplayable. It's weird, mm-hmm. right? It's like, well, the game plays the same. Why would you care? It's like because that impact's not there and it, it messes with your memories. And yeah, uh, yeah it's so a whole is package it worth deal. It? Yeah. I mean, music is every bit as important as graphics, in my opinion, when it comes to games. Oh, like, it absolutely it, it, ma- it can make or break a game, you know? And a game with, like, excellent music that has you humming it for your entire life, you know? Some of these yeah. songs from 16-bit games that I still got in my brain, you know, are just like, that That makes the game, you know? Sonic 3, right? Oh, Sonic abs- 3 is oh, the gosh. perfect example what a nightmare. of this. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that was... You know, whenever that gets re-released and you hear these like prototype songs, it's just all the impact is taken out of that game. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's it, a shame, Brad. Uh, I'm surprised that it's not work with Brad Buxer more and trying to get that sorted. I, I've been trying to talk with him a couple times, but he, I guess he's kind of more reluctant to talk about that. Being mostly, maybe it might be an MJ related thing, but maybe he just doesn't care. It's like it's a video game, dude. So you know, when that story broke, I was one of the people. Uh, so I was working for a website called the Original Sound Version at the time, which was like a video game related news site, uh, video game music related news site. Uh, and uh, I got to speak with him because he had done an interview in a French magazine where he had sort of hinted at all this stuff. Yeah. And so I like I approached him and talked to him and um, it was my interview plus a couple others that kind of confirmed the Sonic 3 stuff. And I just remember a very antagonistic and slightly annoyed man. Hmm. Uh, Do you think it was more on the Michael Jackson side or more the Sega side of them, you know, just screwing him over, essentially, if you had to guess? I don't know. Um, I'm trying to remember because it's many, many, many years ago now. But I also just remember a kind of like bafflement and annoyance at video games as a thing mm-hmm. just kind of like this is not like this is a waste of time and like it wasn't a serious thing to begin with like why even talk about any of this it's it sucks kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, yeah i remember he was kind of adamant that like the music uh that had been made by jackson he had like he had made the music but he was really upset with how it sounded through the sound chip and i found this kind of weird because like if like Jackson was a pretty noted gamer and played Mega, I say Mega Drive, uh, played Genesis, 
extensively and would have known kind of what the sound is supposed to be and seemed to be no problem when Sega made um, Moonwalker. Moonwalker, yeah. Yeah, and Sonic 3 sounds phenomenal. So I always... I see it reported now, kind of like that's the reason. And I feel like I should have pushed back more back then when talking and in, like doing the interview because... I think that's more of a personal feeling than uh, like an MJ kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't know. I certainly never spoke to Michael Jackson. But he was recording in the studio. He would have been, uh, you know, tracking everything with MIDI and using better, you know, studio equipment and and everything. When it it got baked down to what the Zilog or... uh, what what is the sound chip in the sixty-eight thousand? So yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. Then you know maybe it was underwhelming to him or whatever. I don't know. Maybe maybe he thought that there might be some promise of uh, sound enhancement, like they did with the master system. You know, like yeah. did it- oh, no, it's a Yamaha. It was the Yamaha y- Yamaha chip. I forgot what exactly the YM whatever, but yeah. I don't. It's all speculation at this point, but yeah, because he hears Yamaha, he's thinking the Yamaha, like the cool sounds that come out of it. Yeah. He doesn't expect fart sounds and it's like oh what is this right and we all well, know well, at least it's not champs you had to work really hard to get good stuff out of the genesis and you yeah. could and people did you know who knew how but those who were just using like the standard tools which were really not great <laughs> yeah and you have to keep in mind that he's not a pro- he wasn't a programmer he's just a you know a musician so mm-hmm. tracking the midi is probably the most technical he probably could have got at that point so he wouldn't know how to access the chips or mess with like the, the waves forms and stuff like that I've often thought the same thing. Like, wouldn't he have known? Like, wouldn't you have kind of known what he was in for <laughs> in terms of like... I mean, he was someone that like would show up at oh, Sega sure. America's development studios and like right. listen in on stuff and test stuff. And yeah, I find that now a little bit dubious of a fact. Hard to believe, right? Yeah, I don't think... Uh, he might have been disappointed still, just that he couldn't push it further being who he was. Mm-hmm. But... I, I don't get the sense that he would have been someone that was just like, well, I'll take my name out of it because I was so embarrassed. I don't want to put my name. Yeah. Like, no, come on. Like, uh, but I was much younger at that time and pushing back on people wasn't like, hmm. now I just fuck him up. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, no, it's, it's, it's hard. But I get it, though. It's like you're meeting someone that's like, I mean, I can get it. Like, as a someone that does interviews and stuff like that, it's kind of hard to, you know, you get a bit nervous. You know, you don't really think as much as you sure do you're free to offend them and have them walk away. I think that's still my biggest fear is I'll say something wrong and they'll just walk away. Like in those, uh, mm-hmm. interview compilations, you know, you make a great point though. Like some of these older folks who worked on this stuff a long time ago, there was like, that was a million years ago. Why does, why do people care? You know, or, or oh. it's just like the, the whole, the, you know, it's trivial cause it's video games. What does it matter? Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm amazed though. My 10 year old Jesse, he loves video game music and he will listen to it on his MP3 player. You know, he'll take it to, he has this little clip, you know, uh, jogging MP3 player. He takes it to school and he's like listening to music. His friends are like, what are you listening to? Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog or yeah, Zelda, yeah. Link to the Past. <laughs> and they're just like, seriously, you're just listening to chip tunes? But he doesn't care. Like that, he will listen to that stuff over and over and over again. So, so, and that to me means that it's like, it doesn't matter that it's chip tunes or whatever, like it's music, you know? And, um, oh, you, music is universal. You cannot trivialize it because of the medium. Absolutely not. And it's, man, when I was working, like, I, I used to get so frustrated over this, uh, when I was at like instructor and stuff back then. And I saw editorial go in and change my article to say like beeps and bloops. 
And it's like, I would never use this term. Mm-mm. Like, this is not the derogatory yeah. music. It's like, I'm not playing Pong anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it has been this since like mm-hmm. 81. Mm-hmm. As it's a stupid term. Uh, it's something that Tom Attell Rico would say. Sure. Uh, it's not something I would say. <laughs> Good call. And <laughs> well, the, the famous producer behind Metroid Prime and yes, by Metroid Prime and all these other famous games. Yes, uh, three hundred of them, in fact. It's just this elitist kind of snooty behavior. Believe it or not, the saxophone was a toy before it ever mm-hmm. got accepted into orchestra. You know, like it was it, yeah. first. It had to like break into jazz and stuff like that, and then it gained yeah. the respect and it became an orchestra instrument. And now it's like kids, you know, can. Yeah, exactly. It used to it used to go from learn to work the saxophone to right. you know <laughs> call me Deacon Blues. Right, <laughs> but I mean, it didn't. So it took a while. You description, know? my boy. Sorry, I'm a we're we're all Steely Dan fans, so I try to oh, throw huge. in Steely Dan references to get Dave a chuckle or two. Well, it does, you know. I mean, but again, like, so the medium, you know, you could argue that it's all noise, right? It's all just sounds, right? Just crazy to me though that like you see like you know the behind the music stuff with like Steely Dan, these people like session musicians, like oh yeah, I played this part in Josie or like this do 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 do, and like they go into that, but like video game posers, it's like it feels like it's almost like a it's weird. Like the musicians, you'd think they'd have that mentality of, oh, we need to preserve it because this is it, work it, that they worked on. It, it. I just don't get it. Like, yeah, it's very strange. Uh, I I never understood it. Then much like your kid, you know, I, I remember the first time I kind of encountered video music was like 86, 87. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't believe it. And believe it or not, like, I think the first video game soundtrack that caught my ears was uh, Gianna Sisters. Mm. I actually played Gianna Sisters before Mario, and I was very confused from my uh, childhood right. uh, about <laughs> uh, which one I came first. Uh, and, you know, Gianna Sisters was just like such a revelation. I couldn't believe it because it was such like a, it was such a driving force to something I was interacting with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it like, it was like, I was a weird kid, but like, I felt like the music was very different from when I listened to it to when I played the game. So I was like, oh, this is like there's this duality to it, which mm-hmm. in a sense there is. Um, you know, you, your triggers kind of change the music as you hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I used to go, I had a Casio kind of cassette player. It was red and had yellow buttons, mm-hmm. much like my hero Hulk Hogan. And it had this microphone, so I would go up to my speaker on the TV, and I would record video game soundtracks, and I would turn the volume down slowly, mm-hmm. so I had a fade out. So you could fade it uh, out? Yeah, because my mom Classic. was a huge uh, Guns N' Roses fan, so I remember she would put on like a cassette or a CD of Guns N' Roses, and I would note that, like, oh, when a song is done, it usually it just kind of slowly fades away. Right. So I'd sit there and I'd record like Gianna Sisters or Batman on NES or whatever I had. I had like tons of cassettes with my own soundtracks on them. That and is then fantastic. I went to uh, Paris, I think. Uh, I, I, we went on a vacation, a family vacation. Yeah. And I just remembered I saw a video game music CD for the first time in like 91. And I couldn't believe that like, wait, they do this officially? <laughs> Like, yeah. like, oh my gosh, I want to buy all of it. Right? Uh, yeah, so oh. I, I actually, yeah, that was the one thing I wanted from that trip. My mom bought it for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to remember what CD was, because I got quite a few. Like, it wasn't all video game music. Um, but what was it? I think it was, like, a Commodore 64 
it might have been one of Chris Holzbeck's albums, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it was something where I recognized I was like, there's Commodore music on this CD. Can you believe it? I was like, yeah, I'll buy it for you if you shut up. Like, all right. <laughs> and, you know, I got it. And yeah, such uh, began my love for video game music for the rest of my life. Because yeah. uh, it became a mission for me at that point to just uh, make sure that people understood that, like, this is as much of music as a, a movie soundtrack or right. pop concert, whatever it is. It's, it, it's a melody. Any melodies, music, mm-hmm. even the bagpipe. I actually do play the bagpipes. Funnily enough, I'm sure you do. <laughs> Were you impressed at Purge with that uh, dude that kept the uh, unicycling around? Yeah, uh, I I liked it because I was hearing tunes I knew, but I kind of wish he would not go towards me when we were filming stuff. Right, yeah, that was great. I was mm-hmm. gonna, I was like thinking about it, and I was like, maybe I should see if I can ask if I can borrow it real quick and play it, and like, like, hey, I could play this, or like shock him because I don't know a lot of people that do play it, but. Yeah, it's it, not the thing like, bagpipers do is like share bagpipes. I thought it was kind of like an intimate thing. I mean, it's it's something that you you could do. I sometimes play it or like a. I imagine you wouldn't mind. It's like oh, some random guy. Let me check that out real quick and mm-hmm. be like that. But I mean, there. I mean, it's very intimate to the fact that it's a wind instrument. So it's like blowing into something someone else blew into. So it's kind of like the whole yeah, saliva yeah. and cross contamination thing. But mm-hmm. there's ways you could you could do it. Usually you play your own, but it's like. I didn't really want to pack my bagpipes. <laughs> You're like, here, I brought my own mouthpiece. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. It's like, let me use my own mouthpiece. Bring it everywhere I go. Everywhere I go, I'm ready. But that was pretty funny, though. I, I think I might know who did that, though. He, he had a Darth Vader mask on, right? Yeah, I was just kind of puzzled by the whole setup. It's like, all right. Yeah, I mean, is there an artistic reason for this whole scene? Are they allowed or... to? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can also sit in the chair without a mask on and play the bagpipe, and I'll be just as happy. Fun fact, I think everyone here plays guitar. Yeah. Audie, you play guitar, right? Yeah. Pat does. We're, we're both musicians. I think Pat plays keys, too. I play keyboard, yeah. But yeah, like, big music fans. Like, I just, music is huge for us. And, and again, video game music is just as important to me as... I'll say conventional music, you know, and I, I think attitudes are starting to change about this, but for the most part, it's still relegated to, you know, video game music. Yeah, I so it, it's changing, but it's been frustrating in the sense how it changed. And I don't mean that it's like, well, now, like, it's not a gatekeeping thing or anything. But what I what I felt about it is that a lot of people who made video game music in the 2010s, when the indies started coming around, uh, kind of proudly patted their backs of it not being like video game music so you have like you know jeremy soul did like um those games and they're like much more orchestral and kind of ambient and yeah it's the video game soundtrack that's just fine but it's not uh, a definitive video game soundtrack in that sense it kind of skirts a lot of the interactiveness of just the melodies themselves. And I'm not talking about technical interactivity. I'm talking about just like taking limited hardware, taking a video game software and looking at it and creating music that kind of blends with perfectly and lifts the experience that way. And I think now you have people like uh, T Lopes and whatnot that is finally kind of um, doing what Jake Hoffman was doing back in the days where it's just taking like classic video music and bringing it into a modern setting. And so now the conversation is kind of changing towards where I wanted it to go. Uh, Cause like T Lopes does incredible stuff like Sonic Mania and Shredded Prevention and whatnot. Uh, now that's video game music. 
Uh, but I was very frustrated for a time where like all these orchestral soundtracks from various composers came in. It's just like, yeah, but it's, it's literally like as background as it can get. Like it really doesn't even interact with much else than itself. Um, and that's not where I want video game music to go. I don't want it to just become a orchestral piece in a cutscene. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, the song is beautiful, but it doesn't technically impress me at all. Because we were doing that with Seventh Guest in 1993. <laughs> it's like, uh, well, when it comes to orchestral stuff like uh, Hitoshi Sakamoto, mm -hmm. Sakamoto san, he does amazing stuff in like uh, Radiant Silver Gun, for example, Soki Gurentai, and um, mm. also Final Fantasy 12, for example, yeah, yeah. where um, there's like a MIDI orchestral soundtrack, and then there's also a remixed, uh, like full orchestral soundtrack. So it can be done right you know oh yeah no no i mean yeah i mean using an orchestra for video game music is absolutely viable and incredible tool i mean like you mentioned like shenmue uh look at ivadara who did like grandia like absolutely incredible um and yeah Dragon. Mm -hmm. so and you know i love classic music and i used to go, i still go to like video game symphonies especially in europe uh there's um, like symphonic fantasies and uh, all those uh, file symphony and incredible symphonic shows uh, that pushes that medium forward. But when I say like kind of static orchestral music, I, I mean mostly in the Western sense that it's just like there was this idea and a lot of, like a talking point of just kind of like, well, we we're taking video game music out of like the stone ages and we're doing like real music now. It's going to be like movies and, and TV yeah. shows and stuff. And it's like, it's like, I mean, it's nice. Like I'm not going to rag on last of us, last of us two soundtrack. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And the sound design in itself is fantastical. Like the guy, uh, like the guy that does it, he does this whole thing and talks about, it's, but it's like, it's, I don't know. It's different. Like, if that makes sense it's like yeah video game music to me it, it feels different it's like almost in itself its own thing yeah, i mean absolutely you can't beat the konami kaheya club if you ask me Kaheya club yeah yeah dude snatcher is like oh my god snatcher is like my asia dude i love snatcher's ost it, yeah it's sega cd uh, version for me yeah i like sd snatcher uh because i actually my friend my neighbor uh, still a good friend of mine in Norway, had an MSX too. Uh, I have no idea how he got it, and he had that Oasis patch, uh, like back in the nineties. So I That's got to play Team Obina, right? Oh, is that how you got into MSX, like via your friend? Yeah. So my buddy Tom, uh, who's probably gonna listen to this, so I'll give him a shout out. But he had an MSX too. Uh, he he still has it. Uh, it's still in this uh, <laughs> office, and yeah, he from what he knows, because he like his grandfather had it. Like, as just like in the playrooms, like, I have this new machine. It's an MSX2. Uh, he is not, he, he's not Japanese or anything. He's very Norwegian. He's born in the woods. And uh, in later years, he's tried, he's tried to piece it together. And apparently, like, a neighbor that lived right next to them, being a neighbor, that's uh, kind of redundant. And uh, <laughs> he had like a computer business and went to Japan a few times due to his business and brought back an msx and then gave that to tom's family apparently so that's how this all happened 
and they modded it to have a new uh, power source. And um, they were on BBS and like got these translation patches from Oasis. Uh, it's not the Artemio uh, patch or anything like like uh, there was a oh, SD Snatcher. Yeah, there's another one now from Project Melancholy uh, or Melancholio or something that like redoes SD Snatcher completely. It's much better. But Oasis back in the day were like this translation group from Netherlands that did a lot of MSX software. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's just a crazy thing. I didn't think about it at the time. Kind of like, why am I sitting here playing? Uh, we I just thought it was cool that there was another Metal Gear. Uh, that was not the NES version because it sucked. Um, so understatement of the of the century right there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like Snake's Revenge just fine, but like, yeah, that Metal Gear and NES I had it, and I, I hated playing it. And then when I hung out with Tom and he showed me, he's like, I remember he borrowed the, uh, the NES cartridge from me, and he's like, "This is terrible. Like the real one is much better." I was like, "Real one? What are you talking about?" And we booted up the MSX and they showed me. I was like, "This is the real one, isn't it? Yeah. Like, this is awesome." Uh, and... It's like you went from uh, you went from uh, American Revolver, uh, sorry, Rubber Soul to the UK Rubber Soul. It's like, oh my gosh, what is this? Uh, great comparison. Deep cut. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm a big yeah. Like I said, we try to get the music stuff, but. Uh... So MSX or PC ninety eight? I have to ask. I th I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm just curious if you put those two against each other. Um, yeah, they're very different types of computers, so what they offer. Uh, I love the MSX for what it offers, uh, and I had so much fun with it, and uh, still do. Um, but PC-98 is just such a fascinating and somewhat defining thing for me, because when I was, when I started looking into all this stuff, no one, I, I, there was a small forum I was part of called Tokugawa, uh, which was kind of trying to document PC-98 stuff. And I would buy games and, like, dump them there. Um, it was such a small community of people, man. Like, I just remember that, like, they would share sometimes, like, an FM Towns game. And then I would put, like, some sort of PC-98 software up there. It's like, ah, this exists. And it was, you know, it wasn't very coordinated or anything. And nowadays, you know, there's all these, like, archives of software for PC-98 and people are really into it and it makes me very happy, obviously. Um, but back then for me, it was just like, not many people could access it. So I was, and I was very intrigued by it as it was. So I was just like, um, yeah, this is, this is something I really want to know more about. And I just dived head into the PC-98 world. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that it's much more, um, well documented now it's it's still not where it probably should be i mean um there's still stigma on it and there's still like a lot of unknowns uh regarding piece 98 in the west but m way more people now than ever talks talk to me about it uh and even at like purge i saw a couple of vendors that had like piece 98 software it wasn't like big stuff but it was just like you know clearly there is a demand for it now because you wouldn't bring that stuff to Purge unless there was. Did you see any um, PC-98 computers there? No. Oh, I was going to say you should have grabbed me. I would have bought that in a second. I <laughs> There's I so many different ones, uh, 
I mean, if you take like the Sharp 68000, for example, that's a much higher profile Japanese computer, I think, and it's much lusted over uh, among Western audiences, at least over the past decade or so, whereas the PC-98 has really flown under the radar. But I do feel like it's starting to pick up some traction. You know, people are starting to uh, gain awareness of PC-98 and all of its software, realize that it's this amazing Japanese computer with all of this amazing software. MSX is also yeah. a little more high profile, I would say. There's a difference in them also in terms of, like the X68000 is like, you know, it's straight up made for gaming. You have scrolling, hardware scrolling for one. Uh, you have all these shooters. And I think the entry point there language wise is much easier. Whereas on PC98, generally, it's got to be very text heavy just because that's what the processing power for that machine is kind of angled towards. So you don't have hardware scrolling. Uh, you have scrolling games, but they're not pretty. And so you kind of need to know a little bit what you're getting into. That's not to say that there aren't uh, great experiences, even if you don't speak the language or read it. Uh, there's like Atlantis, which is the Space Harrier game, which is really interesting, uh, which most people don't know about. Uh, there's Edge, there's uh, Briganti, there's all these like actual. Um, there's even fighting games like VG, which came out on Saturn, I think, or PlayStation as an advanced VG, uh, Variable Geo. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that, the, the crossover to Saturn. I know there was a uh, pretty competent little compilation for the MSX on the Saturn. Oh, Konami one. Yeah, I have one. That's not exactly cheap, but I mean, if folks can find it for a decent price, I, I would recommend it. It's pretty great. Um, but I was wondering, if is there any crossover from PC-98 to Saturn? So for the Saturn, because the PC, so MSX was already by then relegated as kind of junk software and kind of it was out of production. So you had the compilation for Konami that you're talking about, the special pack or deluxe pack. Uh, on Saturn, it's one disc. On PlayStation, it's three discs and has worse, the worst emulation of the Saturn version. So if you're going to pick up the MSX compilation, do it on Saturn. Um, but for the PC-98, that was... That was ongoing until 2001. And, you know, when you say PC-98, it's not like it's one machine that kept going. You know, it was iterations of it. And there's over, like, 60 variations of, if not even more. But the main mainline PC-98 is a variation of, like, 60 different setups. Uh, eventually, it would be have, like, Windows 95 on it. Um, but there are games ported from PC-98 to Saturn. Uh, the aforementioned, like, you know, and Eberst, their desire. Um, there are plenty of those types of crossovers. Um, I think a, I think a couple of... I think there... Wasn't there a fan trend, fan competition thing, Dave, that uh, they did a, a conversion to a PC-98, like the breakout clone on there? Right. Was wasn't that, that, that uh, Cyberblock Metal Orange? But yeah, I think that was also... I think, yeah, it was... Uh... It was NSFW, and we tried <laughs> to stream it on our, on our stream, and we're like, yeah, we can't stream this. But, <laughs> yeah, I think that's what, what it was. That's it. That sounds, that sounds about right, yeah. So I think, yeah, because it was still an active platform, you know, you, you had the crossover of, like, being multi-platform game um, and generally toned down slightly for the Saturn, but eventually not even that so much. Um, you know, Sega's restrictions on content loosened over time but there you can definitely find crossover between pc 98 software and saturn software i gotcha 
Yeah. Pat and I recently did a podcast with John, um, who's a good friend of yours. And he said that we should ask you about Japanese uh, Saturn games. Specifically, you were a big fan of some of the more obscure titles for the Japanese Saturn. And I was just curious, um, what are your recommendations? You, what, what games do you think fly under the radar or that, you know, are games that folks should uh, check out and be more aware of? You know, a couple of years ago, I'd say Bulk Slash, but I think most people, especially listening to this, has heard of that. Right. Yeah. Uh, you play the dub? But no, I mean, yeah, it was dubbed, right? I f- yeah. Full that. English audio dub by the uh, Bulk yeah. Slash team. That's right. Yeah. And it's, it's like incredible. It's like professional. Uh, and... Not, not only just professional, but like kind of done in the way of like a 90s. It's just, uh, I love the work that was done Bulk Slash, and I wish it could come out officially with that dub on it. Same. Um, Mostly because we're in it, so that'd be cool. Can, uh, can Limited Run make that happen? <laughs> Carbon Engine? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll ask. <laughs> we'll ask. Um, They've done Stellar Assault, but, too, and that, that was phenomenal as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah honestly, I mean, honestly, I think there's just so much that... I really wish there was a, a ability to bring all these fan translations that people worked on to official releases and make them like, you know, make them like, you know, the, their own, like, you know, stars, their own translation company, their mm. own working designs, if you will. But I know that's a lot of legal gray area that's hard to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it is hard. When it comes to Japanese Saturn, though, I do, I absolutely love collecting Japanese Saturn because it's just the variety on it is insane. And the quality of most of that is just even above PlayStation. I think when you start like going into the nitty gritty, mm-hmm. um, I'm a huge, huge fan of Langrisser, which oh, yeah. uh, was a series that started on the Genesis uh, War Song in the US. Mm-hmm. And uh, Langrisser is so good on Saturn. Uh, obviously, I don't, I think one or two of them have maybe been translated. I don't know, even on Saturn, maybe it's the PlayStation versions. PlayStation versions, yeah. It, there's a huge language yeah. barrier, which is the only reason I think yeah. people haven't really... It still goes under the radar because it's right. like these huge... It's so much text to, to right. try to translate that, yeah. But uh, I have a few of those games. Yeah, just absolutely incredible. Uh, and the, my favorite Saturn game is one that's kind of... I think it's one that if you're learning Japanese, it's real fun to pick up. Hmm. Uh, and as an entry point to the world of Japanese Siren games, if you're learning language, man, it's just an incredible game. And that's Nanatsukaze no Shima Monogatari. Yes. Uh, which the story just, of the Island of Seven Winds. Yeah. Yes. Uh, published by Enix. And, right. Uh, yeah. give, it's a giver game. And it's just incredible, right? It's just like this magical game of exploration and, you know, non verbal storytelling i mean yes. there's some there's some reading points like a storybook but like everything is figured out by just connecting with the game mm-hmm. uh it's so much more up my alley i love that kind of experimentation in games um, it, it's so deep same. too and they, like when you dig into the assets of that game both via the manual and the book mm-hmm. that was released with it you know because there was a yeah. book that went along with it it's just it's like nino cooney or something like that it's it's incredibly yeah. deep like and there's so much art that went into that there's so much craftsmanship that went into that game it's a shame that n- not more people know about it 
but I'm really hoping that that is kind of like in my bucket list of like, I want to see that translated. I think there's currently a Spanish translation being oh, uh, attempted. Huh. Yeah. Like there, there, there is, I, I, I don't know if it's stalled out or if it's still being worked on. I, I think we all believe it's still being worked on, but yeah, it's Spanish. So, I mean, if, I mean, at least it's a Latin language. I mean, they can, if they can get it over to Spanish, then, you know, that may inform a, a an English translation, but yeah, I would love Love, love, love to see that. But yeah, the bulk um, slash team, they took a look at it. You know, they were they yeah. were seriously probing it and they said, Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's a lot of like compression routines and whatnot, probably mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. Uh which yeah, it would be hard. Um Lanos too was another one. I oh, think yeah. that's been announced for a US release now, finally. Mm-hmm. Um oh, wait, I don't know if it was even announced, but it was hinted at at least on Twitter. Assault that someone's going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Lane house too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope that happens. Uh, I love, I mean, I'm a huge fighting game guy. So Asuka 120. Uh, right. Absolutely. So that's limited. Yeah. And subsequently, they, that team put out a patch. Right. They uh, put out a patch on their own game. That's great. Yeah. 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 Uh, still around. Uh, I know them actually. That's one of the, like the uh, earliest and, translations that was released, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, those guys are still around and still doing. They just put out the Mad Stalker uh, again on the Mega Drive, and they've been working on resurrecting Asuka 120. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens with that. Uh, there was a canceled Mega Drive release of that, so I'm mm-hmm. hoping maybe that's what they're working on. Uh, I don't right. know. Evo 2024, let's go. Yeah. 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 I wonder if Josh and you guys would be able to get the license for bulk slide. There's nothing, there's no other media in there. There's no other like licensed things in that game, you know? So it's, it's, it's also a Konami thing. Cause it's a right. Hudson. It's a Hudson so, game. So yeah. That's, them. yeah. Yeah. It's just a matter of like, you know, cause especially when it is something like a fan translation, mm-hmm. um, even though the fan translators pro- generally, as I've talked to some of them, uh, not specifically for this game, but for others, it's like, they're very happy to sign over their work mm-hmm. if it can be used officially. So, yeah, take it and you know, mm-hmm. sign whatever. But for Konami's side or any other um, publisher or developer, it's like we just can't guarantee that if it's a big team that did this for fun and the game is a success, what's stopping them from coming out of the woodworks and saying, like, well, you know, I didn't know They'd have to that spend. it was going to make right. two million dollars. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Like I was going to say that you also have the dub and actors it's like they're seeing all this these copies getting sold with the money it's like well where's yeah as for free do, do i get a cut of this is there mm-hmm. there's something yeah. in it for me and it's like you have to work with all of them and it's a whole process where like it's not as easy as oh let's do it and shine it over there's all of that potential lawsuit stuff with that it's yeah it's a messy and, situation and getting their signature on paper isn't just a matter of having that paper you know you have to for a legal standpoint and a moral one uh, us as a company, as well as the individuals, need to have had the proper legal counseling in order to have this deal make sense. Mm. And it's just a long, expensive route to go. Right. Uh, it is. It is not as straightforward as people not think. Not straightforward. Uh, and I think it's easy to just kind of armchair it and say like, "Well, I, I don't get it." Like, if people say you can just use it, why not just take it? Why not just put it on a disc and do whatever? And it's like, because you just never know. Mm-hmm. And the last thing a developer or publisher wants, especially in, in Japanese, um, it's it's a lawsuit or some kind of publicity where they did something uh, unlawful. It's just kind of like, 
that's eh, not good publicity. Right. Exactly. We don't want that, so, especially if it's like for a third party like us. It's one of those things then that where the fans don't necessarily understand completely everything that's involved. Like that often happens in game fandoms is they just think that it, everything is just so, you know, why, why can't such and such company do this or put this out? You know, I'd buy it, but that's yeah. not, it's not as easy as that. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, I mean, and a lot of companies, it just makes sense. It's like, I mean, it's doable. Like they could potentially, if you get everyone's signature, everyone's happy, everyone gets compensated in some way or in some form, it could happen. But more than likely it comes to look at it like, why don't we just like do it ourselves and just dub it for the rate for right. whatever voice acting yeah. conglomerate we can get and do the voices that way. And that way we can legally sign the paperwork. It's through uh, whoever does the, does the dubbing. It's like, that's their problem for that. They just mm -hmm. hand it over, sign the contracts and be just as easy if not easier in some aspects if they have everything already in line you know yeah because with yeah. the bulk slash team i believe at least with bulk slash there were like nine or ten people involved you mm -hmm. know and so it's like you said they have to make sure that each of those people has legal counsel at least uh, informing them okay this is how it's going to work you're okay with this yeah. it's not just sending them a piece of paper but it's like no. giving them uh the opportunity to you know say oh, okay well i want to exercise my options you know in this way or that way yeah so not to mention some of them are also i think sag after uh members as well so mm -hmm. there's yeah. also that you have to keep in mind uh, at that point you're there's nothing you can do the attitude in the culture in the uh, fan translation scene is definitely one of like not wanting money, you know, because of the legal gray or not mm -hmm. even gray area. You know, it's like it's, you know, nobody wants it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural mm -hmm. thing. It's like people doing homebrew games would like to sell their games, you know, and make money yeah. off if they can. But people doing patches, it's literally just for street cred, basically. It's literally just for like, yeah. we did this, look look at what we made, you know? But it's definitely yeah. always like giveaway because they know they, you know, it's not legal for them to charge money on it or make any money from it, you know? So so yeah. that from that standpoint, I definitely know that everyone would be on board. Uh, but again, like from the legal standpoint of the company trying to do it, it I, I definitely see where you're coming from, like how it's a lot more complex of a situation than people realize. I mean, even from like a standpoint of a developer kind of taking on, taking in a fan translation, you, mm. you also have to kind of make sure like, where did this translation come from? Like what tools were used? Did mm. they have the license? Like, did they use some software they downloaded and true. didn't have the proper, like there's so many things. Oh yeah, uh, that's that true. And all that, like, what, if I'm the producer on the game, uh, and this happened, it's like it's my job to go in and figure out all this stuff, and it takes forever because like you'll you'll have all the details you think, and then someone comes back and says like actually you know to do this image I use Photoshop, and I don't actually have the license to do that. And it's like okay, I mean unless unless I report it, obviously no one knows, but it is my job to be transparent about it because like the one zero point zero zero one percent that there is some sort of metadata or anything that can track down the fact that like this was used with unlawful software uh in japan is just a no-go so it's just yeah it, it gets real difficult sometimes depending on the scope of wow. these fan translations and i, I didn't even think of that that's insane yeah that's I, yeah that's pretty insane like, that's and, crazy. and that's that's something that like we wouldn't think of think of off the top of our head that you know that could get people in legal trouble. It could get the company legal trouble because, like, any little thing like that, you know, they could. I mean, they probably won't, but you know, any chance of a lawsuit that's possible 
that's the risk. Even if it's that low of a risk, it's like that's oh, still yeah. too high I mean, for the lawyers there. It's like, no, yeah, mm-hmm. sorry, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Especially for like, you know, fan translation of a software that came out 25 years ago on the Sega Saturn. It's like you want like you want to put any like even a zero zero one percent risk on the your company via this one. Like, you know, why? Uh, it just you, takes one lawsuit and then yeah. That's it. Your company's gone. And it's like, I mean, and you have to, and there's also that, just all that stuff, like where the, like you said, where the translation come from? Because some of them use guides. It's like, what about there's plagiarism, you know, you know, yeah, references, plagiarism, just like, what is the quality of it? Like, who has double checked it? Who has edited this? Does it need to be re edited? Does it, like, you know, there's, yeah, licensing fan translations. I often, I often see like people putting out a patch or something, and then fans immediately at like the game company itself and says like, "Hey, you know, Capcom, you should pick this up and release it, and this and that." It's just don't do that, like because they can't do that. And you know, this exists in a space of its own where mm-hmm. you know it is for the fans. So you can enjoy it through whatever means you have to play it on real hardware and ever drive or whatever. Um, but the legal scrutiny that comes on some of these games, even with just an act, can be kind of severe. So it's always best to, like, if you want to go the legal route with it, you know, approach in private. Because um, I've certainly seen a fair share of, like, projects and whatnot get shut down um, just due to the fact that there is so many complications regarding all this that people don't think about. And it's not even from ill intent uh all the time mm-hmm. it's just like oh like we like we do not know the state of this software and who owns it and we or they're in some sort of legal quandary with the creator and like when they find out people are fan translating it's like no no you can't do not touch it like we do not know what's going on with this software um so it's just uh generally i always suggest that like uh keep the rights holders out of it uh until uh you have a proper avenue to pitch it. Right. Exactly. And that's a good idea. Is just like if, if you've done the fans religion, do you want legit try to I guess pitch it to some of these companies? I imagine Limited Run or the or you guys would probably be like, Hey, that's interesting. Or if you pitch it like, Hey, I have this whole pitch deck, what do you guys think? And mm-hmm. you know, it might be a no, but it also could be a yes, which mm-hmm. you know, Oh yeah, absolutely. Something. I mean, uh if you go through a proper publisher through it, at least you don't have to sit there and do all the paperwork uh, and that they would need to look at in order for it to be viable. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it generally helps that it comes through an official publisher rather than just like a fan community. Um, and yeah, it's it, it gets difficult though, as can imagine through this conversation. It's like exactly. it's these fan translations are awesome, and I, I play them all the time, but. Mm-hmm. In some cases, just like man, the road to get them into the official license space is near impossible. It's mm-hmm. never impossible, but it's near impossible. Right. You know, here a topic that we have talked about a lot recently, Pat and I, and I think I've been like an angry old man yelling at the sky <laughs> is uh, physical media. Oh yeah. I've I've gone on and on about you know what I think about it, and you know what what it feels like to walk into a Target and see you know credit cards 
that are full price that are, you know, publishers are not actually publishing physical media anymore, you know, or, or at least they're winding it down. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts and just in general, you know, on physical media and games and, and all that. I've seen some posts from you on Twitter. Yeah, some of the best posts. <laughs> some of the best posts, exactly. Uh, I do a lot of posts about just kind of pointing out the, the fun. Like, I, I poke fun of people who are digital only, mm -hmm. kind of hardcore digital only, who kind of argue that, like, physical media is no longer any space. And it's like, yeah, well, I met you at the party, and I asked you to go home because there's no space for you physically in my home. Uh, <laughs> and it's... It's based on a true story, but you know, it's it's in gist and fun. But like it's it's frustrating. Obviously, I work for Limited Run Games. Mm -hmm. That's my day job. And we specialize in doing direct to consumer physical editions of video games. Uh so obviously you already know from where I work how I feel about right. physical product. Um and for me, my job and my love for video games, film, music is from an artistic love. And I think a personal value into what you love, you know, it's not just about, I think a lot of people go into like this very quickly go into this thing of like, well, it's just hoarding and waste of resources and all this nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, suddenly everyone's like super into the environment when it comes to only specifically physical video games. Uh, yet, you know, they drive cars and whatnot. And I, I try to be environmentally motivated myself. I recycle and I do my part of that. Mm -hmm. But the thing about like physical video games and physical movies, especially, I love film. Right. And I could talk as many hours about movies as I could about mm -hmm. video games. And it's like the value of like having a curated personal set of art that you love, that you can display and get an emotional reaction for from that you can share mm -hmm. easily uh and just holding valuing uh it's not about having 2000 video games in your shelf and pointing out taking a picture on twitter and saying like look right. at all these games i never play i i, I totally understand that's a hoarding mentality mm -hmm. uh and if you'd never play those games maybe you have 2000 games i i do uh but a lot of it is like Commodore 64 software and whatnot. Uh, but I do try to play everything I have. Mm -hmm. uh, I do. I don't buy games just to buy them. I do always put the game in and play them and try to understand why I bought it. Uh, but um, there's something to be said about just having a curated personal appreciation for the things that influence you. And a lot of that is done much better via a physical manifestation of that art. Um, sure. You can look at a painting on Google, mm -hmm. but if you go to a museum and see it, the things that you feel and the things that you get from that painting is going to be very different. Right. And seeing Bloodsport in 4K from a 4K disc, uh, there's things you're going to see and things you're going to feel by holding that disc, putting it in, and seeing it in pristine quality, that streaming just will absolutely never and it will never get to that point so for many people what i'm getting is that part of enjoying that media 
is the mm-hmm. ceremony or the yeah. the act of interacting with it physically that it's right. not just the content that's going into your eye holes but it's like just the way that you would put on a vinyl record and you would deliberately yeah. listen to the music not just something in the background but something that you're deliberately doing because you want to interact with the music you know it's so fucking frustrating too like you mentioned vinyl and like i don't collect vinyl personally and i get frustrated actually with video music because everyone releases video music on vinyl right cd is the perfect medium for perfect it. medium for it. yeah it's yeah. just like it's so backwards i yeah. i but yeah. I, I don't say it shouldn't exist on vinyl uh, i love the fact that you can get video music on vinyl because it's a big form factor has beautiful art on it you have liner notes that explains what went into the music shit that you don't get right. in a digital space but people who are often digital only uh, video games mm-hmm. film um first of all you mentioned the word content which i think is the most poisonous word right in, in art uh in the last 25 like 20 years since netflix came around because people now consume content it's all about just well we created a season you can binge watch uh kind of halfway and it doesn't even matter it's even filmed in such a way that you can watch in like 2x speed and just oh it, it's just a matter it's just a matter that you're gonna see like the the middle act and then the cliffhanger so mm-hmm. that you know you're you're still kind of engaged and whatnot I still don't understand people that do that. That's insane. It's like, why mm-hmm. would you watch it? Just watch it at full speed. If you don't you like just, it, don't watch it. It's like, do they just want to be able to engage in water cooler conversations just, so that they don't feel left out or whatever? But you're not really enjoying the art. Not at all. It's it's so frustrating because like people will pick up vinyl with the understanding that like, well, you know, I really like that album and I picked up vinyl because it sounds better for my vinyl player that's not properly hooked up and it doesn't sound better at all. It's on like a it's... Crossley Cruiser some stuff like that. <laughs> Little record smudger. Well, I mean, an orke- so an orchestral soundtrack that was recorded analog you know, it makes sense to put it on an analog format, but you're absolutely right like, so VGMDB you had a hand in that and, and that catalogs hundreds Everything. of thousands of game cds you know and a right. lot of these cds are actually really expensive because they're super rare these pressings yeah. right you know and so yeah a digital soundtrack makes sense to belong on a digital media like a cd yeah. but still having the physical manifestation of it like you said you know having it um and i think it's cool that kids are even getting back into the compact discs and stuff like that you know there is a their, their tape cassette and discs are seeing a resurgence mini disc of course record you know recording your own uh, soundtrack yeah. kind of like you did with the tape tape cassette mm-hmm. it's coming back it's still niche but it's coming back but i mean because we screwed over the last few years too right because yeah. like you had streaming take over and the, like over the top services and we always knew it was going to crash like and mm-hmm. that, that value was going to go away and it, it has and now people are like you know well my kids still want to watch like spongebob whether i think it's probably still streaming but like right people are starting to look out for the dvd sets now yeah I yeah, have the same issue they, with like with like Star Trek. Like it, it switched like three different services yeah. within a couple of years. It's like, oh, I want to watch TNG. Oh, it's not on. It's not on Netflix anymore. Oh, let me switch over to uh, was it the CBS all? Oh, it's not there anymore. It's the Paramount Plus, Plus and, yeah. and yeah. it's like, well, I I guess I I guess I'll go find it somewhere. I get a DVD set and put it on a Plex server. There you go. It ain't going nowhere. Finally. Yeah, you I'm, can do that. Or you can just get the Blu-rays that look, you know. As I said, streaming is never going to even get to the point where like a Blu-ray or a 4K direct transfer is going to like look on your TV. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, the colors are going to be 
incredible like no more crushed blacks like you know depending on which tv you have right but, like you're gonna have such a like incredible experience and i've had people argue with me up and down like i can't even see the difference it's just like it, you know it doesn't matter and then you know you put on uh 4k blu-ray of like you know john wick or i wish speed racer was on 4k uh, just because that, that would be, movie. Yeah, yeah, that would have been a, a great, incredible showcase. But like, you just see those colors pop, and it's like this reluctance, and then they finally just like, "Hey, this looks way better." I <laughs> yeah, still will buy, you know, physical, yeah. but like, you know, it looks way better. And I think with children, one thing that's really frustrated me is seeing this idea that like any any physical possession is kind of meaningless now. We have to be mobile and minimalistic, and but as children. The reason why we have the memories we have is the things we held and the things that we mm -hmm. enjoyed. And we have an emotional, it's not just nostalgia, it's actual like emotional connections with these things. Mm -hmm. And I think kids miss that. You know, I think uh, like I have nieces that I'd still give, you know, physical movies to and physical games to now because they're getting into games and i just see the excitement they have that it's actually something real it's not just on their tablet mm -hmm. uh, and i i see the difference in reaction uh and i think it's being taken away a little bit and th this is not me saying like also oh, just start showering them with physical trash like just fill up their rooms with junk because that will make them happy but kind of understand that like it's about creating bonds to specific things that make them happy, uh, be it Peppa Pig or Bluey or whatever it is. Right. Um, that actually kind of helps fill their lives with a certain sense of happiness that comes again and again. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to come to me and say like, well, it's a waste of like resources and it hurts the plant and whatnot. Like, I'm sorry, my dude, but like we can still trade and reuse these plastics 40 years in like i can still play my nes cards uh they're still being reused so i think it's just fine for me to have this reusable plastic thing uh, yeah it's, it's, it's like working. your ford f-150 is going to be doing more uh, harm to the environment my dude yeah and that's going to be gone faster doing than your streaming uh streaming center with like all these like uh cooling towers around the right. planet Eh. My argument to those who say it's hoarding is just you don't have to own everything. No. <laughs> you just don't have to buy all the things, you know? It's buy, like an extreme. Focus <laughs> on the things like you use the word curated, and that's exactly what I think folks should do is like find the things that really mean something to you that you have a connection with and focus on those things because have, it's like the Marie Kondo, you know, does this spark joy? You hold something in your hands from your childhood, like a copy of mm -hmm. Link to the Past or something, and you're like, Yes, this is this is what a video game is, you know, and I and I stick it into the console. It's a physical thing so that you're interacting with the game in more ways than just, you know, yeah. uh, than just just loading it up onto the eShop or, or whatever or, or onto whatever streaming service while it's available, you know, and that's why, yeah. you know, I recently got Jesse a Genesis Mini to put in his room, you know, so he could have some kind of like physical way to play those games rather than just enjoying mm -hmm. it through a download service, you know, and he's like, wow, dad, it, it looks just like yours in, in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> it looks just like your your big Genesis, you know, but mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah, you know, it, it's it's real you know i mean and it's a way you know that he's able to play those games licensed and enjoy them and it supports the company so yeah 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 i, I say all this and like i don't know if this is a video podcast or whatnot but like it, i just moved 
So like uh, this trash here is uh, just moving trash. It is not mm. me hoarding trash. But uh, no, right. I feel that uh, my, my room's kind of a mess right now as well. I have a <laughs> I'm going through some some winter cleaning. So I have I have my my GTX graphics card like sitting next to me a five old mm. five seventy. Mm. I'm just trying to clear out like just a bunch of stuff and. I guess that's the thing, though, is that there's nothing... I don't know, I always found it more impressive, and I think Dave and I always say, all killer, no filler. I find mm. it more impressed that I have, like, 300 games that you really like yeah. versus 2,000 games that's like, oh, hey, here's Madden 25. It's like, I don't care. Like, full like, collector sets, and it's just like, yeah, I have the full library on, like, Genesis or NES. And it's like, all right, what's your favorite game? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I haven't played that many of them. I mean, every it's once in like, a while, I, we both have to take a step back and kind of look at this and say... Am I using this? Am I am I getting any joy from this? Am I not? Then there's probably somebody else out there who really yeah. would like to have this, you mm -hmm. know. So pass exactly. it on, you know. And 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 I you try not to hoard too much, you know. Like I, one thing I really love hoarding, <laughs> to be honest with you, is just the hardware itself. I absolutely yeah. love proprietary computers, you know, mm -hmm. you know, like the 3DO or the the new Geo CDZ or the I don't know. It, every little console, you know, is just this proprietary computer that plays its own bespoke software, and it has so much more appeal to me than just you know like a Windows computer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Uh, and that's that's the thing is so the hardware that I love collecting game hardware and then you know the games as well but tr i try not to get too crazy <laughs> with the games right yeah. because you know no i'm with you though i there I, is a lot of filler on these i yeah. love just weird hardware in general well yeah and like I, I wrote a book a few years ago about every wrestling game ever made mm -hmm. and i made a incredible mistake that i had to play them on real hardware before i could write about them oh god <laughs> uh, so i had to like track down like a super cassette vision and things like this and actually get it uh, i went to japan quite a few times to like track down pachinko machines and oh wow it, it was a nightmare of a project for different reasons uh, it took almost 10 years to finish uh mm -hmm. which is great when it's a crowdfunded thing it's like people are very patient right um uh, but, but... that that awesome work into it. that's amazing i I don't think I'd be able to do the same for Saturn games. I think I would just like, yeah. Okay, I'm a little setting that kind of a like a boundary on yourself, you know, is is very ambitious, you know. Um, yeah. So Jeremy Parrish has done similar stuff, you know, with his uh, NES series and the Game Boy series. It's like got to be physical, even if, even if he buys it just to capture all that footage and then sell it on, you know. To yeah, he sells it off or donates to like museums and stuff. I mean, I work with Jeremy all the time. Exactly. He's a fantastic. Right. Fantastic resource. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, but it's just man, there's so much hardware people don't even think about out there. Right. Um, which. You, you'd think for, like, a book about wrestling games, arcades, Super Nintendo, like, PlayStation 2, like, uh, a lot of people assumed it was just like, well, that's pretty straightforward, and it's just, no. There's, mm -hmm. like, 800 games uh, across, like, all these systems that people haven't even heard of, and I have to find them. Uh, this is before I got to know John Lindman, so it wasn't him uh, pressuring me. Right. Uh, I was like this before I was John Lindman. You were like this, yeah. Even. So... Uh, it was just like a thing where I, I just felt like I'm not giving an accurate rundown of this game unless I know how it played. And mm -hmm. uh, mostly came from like MAME where mm -hmm. I was playing games and it just had like audio cuts outs and graphical issues. And I was just like, I don't want, 
I want to know exactly what it was like to play this game. Well, uh, yeah, I need to play Raw 2 on the Xbox I mean, in its original form. If you take the Switch and its emulation of Nintendo 64, right? It's like, you, yeah, you mm-hmm. can play the game, but man, you look at some of those comparison screenshots and you realize like how different it actually is on mm-hmm. real hardware. You know, like there's yeah. a lot of, and I mean, some people may argue that it's trivial those are the same people who argue that you know physical media is trivial you know yeah, right, right. Um, but it really is important you know for a preservation aspect it's like people need to 100 years from now be able to look back and know about these things and understand what it was really like you know yeah because even you know even in that little as i said like you'd think the genre of wrestling video games is pretty simplistic it's mm-hmm. just like well i guess they talk some wrestlers in this but as to like if you read through that book uh it goes through every one of them chronologically mm-hmm. and you know there's so many stories within of how like people came into video games and this was their first game or like mm-hmm. there's so much historical content in this only this subgenre right of sports game and it's just like people really do not understand the amount of history we're losing on a daily basis by having this flippant right. kind of attitude towards it. Mm-hmm. And that kind of became the driving force because, you know, I wasn't like, I loved wrestling when I grew up and I still do to a certain extent, but like, I wasn't like a huge fan of it by the time I started that book. Uh, but it just came from a, I had done some interviews at E3 over the years with like different people who all just happened to have worked on a wrestling game. And I was kind of, intrigued because they generally didn't seem like it uh including the guy who made nba jam and i was just like huh like there's this interesting crossroads between all these developers having worked on a wrestling video game at some point be it from europe or us or japan uh that's interesting i kind of wonder if you go through all the like chronologically what kind of stories will you find Mm. Uh, and also you know what the games themselves how did that evolve because it was practically it was the first fighting game ever made was a wrestling game. Mm-hmm. It was the first one-on-one fighter. So like you have that genre to thank for another huge genre that came with like street fighter two and whatnot. So it's just like, there's so many stories here people aren't thinking about and it's never going to be written unless I do it, I guess. Uh, so it just kind of became this proving point of like, See, like even something as silly as this, like men in tights or whatever, like has all this historical value. Mm -hmm. Like imagine if we take a look at other things like JRPGs, which um, Bitmap Books eventually did. Mm -hmm. And I got the right for that too, some PC-98s RPGs. So it's like, it's fun to see just now how we can actually kind of dive into these topics a little bit more. Exactly. It's fascinating how much there is there with the short period of history, because really video games only really exist in like since the 1960s and sixties and seventies in the form that we imagine, imagine, imagine like you, if you count like the, the electronic, you know, penny machines back Mm in the, 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 the twenties, thirties, forties, you can count that, but still like the, the medium itself is, less than almost like 60 years old in a way so yeah. it's like oh yeah i mean you can kind of yeah. you can kind of consider it like 45 years old from like where modern video games are coming from generally right, right i mean you can go further back and you can always go further back but like if you do the cutoff at like 78 um you know and start there and it's 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 wild to me because 
you look at film from the 1910s and 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. like Universal Monster movies and things like this, uh, for years. And I'm a huge fan of like Hong Kong cinema, and that's what my Absolutely. new book is about: is Hong Kong cinema and video games. Uh, and Hong Kong saw their films as completely disposable. It was just for the theatrical run, mm -hmm. and then that wasn't like that. No one cares about this, so very right. little was preserved from. Hong Kong cinema well into like the late nineties, mm -hmm. they were still destroying film because they were just like, it's crazy. You know, the yeah. stock doesn't, it's not worth anything. Right. And, um, with video games, it's the same kind of thing where like, we're just discarding it as not as trivial, Yeah. but much like film, you know, we go back now and we look at, you know, Bella Lagosa movies as such as extremely historical relevant and influential how phil yeah. you know and we're doing the same with video games and we have to like beg people right to understand like no it is relevant right like this is historical regardless of how you feel about it and people just still just like it's just a video game and these are the people playing video games right. saying that it took the film industry years, decades to take itself seriously enough where it yeah. didn't consider things frivolous. And now it's like they have, uh, you know, systems and methods for everything. And there are warehouses of props that are from films mm -hmm. that were shot, you know, uh, 50 or 60 years ago that might end up being used again in a film later on. You never know. It's like, and so now they have that kind of appreciation, uh, uh, at least, you know, established where it's like okay everything is kind yeah. of going to be important you can't know what it's going to be used for later and so in the game industry you had trade shows with like these just amazingly elaborate uh, setups you know like e3 they, they would do they would have all these facades built and the knights into dreams thing flying through the rings and stuff like that. and that probably ended up in a dumpster in the back or something like that it was like well, well we don't know where to put it now so uh toss it in the dumpster you know Unless you were mindful enough, uh, you know, had the wherewithal to go dumpster diving back then. It's like a lot of that stuff just ended up in the landfill. And it's crazy. I think the industry is finally self-aware enough now where it's like, okay, uh, we have I to... I didn't think that, but uh, no. Not even there no, yet. No, no. I mean, Nintendo, like... Nintendo still was suing people, like taking, doing DMCAs on people selling Nintendo kiosks and stuff. So, mm -hmm. I mean, well, that's, so that's... That's one thing, but like Nintendo in itself is probably the best preserver in right. the industry because they still keep like they they kept their source codes like uh, archived proper since mm. their inception basically as a video game company. And I've worked on games that were made in the 2010s where the source code no longer exists. And wow. you look at other games from Japanese developers too, like I mean Sega is a big one, right? With Patch yeah. Saga, uh, where did that just doesn't exist? It's like, yeah. why doesn't it exist? Because it was completely disposable. The game came out, and who cares? And it it's just really frustrating that we don't have this mindset that this is worth keeping. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just a matter of like, it's not relevant to me. Therefore, it will never be relevant to anyone else, mm -hmm. which I think is a lot of people's way of thinking these days. Yes, and. It's so quick that that changes where it's like, I wish we had that. Uh, not just in video games, but in everything. Mm -hmm. Where it's just like, we really should have kept that. We really should have, yes. Yeah, I mean, even we at Shiro keep all our stuff. I mean, Dave, it was funny the other day, Dave wanted to remaster, was it the Sega Lord X podcast, right? 
and like get audio from that and it's like oh yeah here's the raw i kept on my hard drive and it's like from years ago that? from like, year yeah I, i'm like yeah we wanted to remaster it because it, it was so bad like that with the, all the noise and the distortion it was so bad i couldn't re-release it as it was you know um but pat actually kept the raw audio file so we were able to like re-upload it yeah so and it, it is like I realize that storage is, it's not free, you know, I mean, it takes up a lot, you know, and that's, that's a concern for these companies, but yeah, like realizing that this stuff is not frivolous, that it is history and that, um, there's always going to be someone who cares, you know, especially down, down the road and, and that it needs to be preserved is, it's kind of like a, it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing that a lot of people have to fight for in this industry. Oh yeah. Because you know, for someone else, also decided it's not relevant. When other people come say it is, it usually leads right. them to kind of want to double down mm -hmm. to not look like they didn't care about something that they should have cared of and things like that. It's 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 a psychological thing, and it's very difficult to explain. But it's like there's so many things still going on in terms of preservation that I hope we overcome. And in video games, is it's just shocking because it's so young, like Pat mentioned, and it's like. We have lost so much mm -hmm. in the decades that has gone since, like, my, you know, I'm from the 80s, and it's like, there's so little left from the 80s mm -hmm. that has survived other than the stories, some of the people. Mm -hmm. And the software itself, yes, as the, you know, retail binary, mm -hmm. but imagine how much uncovered it was that we just will never see. Um, and I've seen some of it sometimes, you know, when we do get the opportunity, like I mentioned with like Peace and the Eight people I hung out with, mm -hmm. I got to see a lot of the stuff that they worked on that never people got to see. Right. And it's like, but it was not, to them, it's not interesting. It's just like, why do you want to see all this? It's like, because totally baffling to me that this even happened. Mm -hmm. um, so. And a lot of the yeah. people are passing too. I mean, you take yeah. somebody like Bernie Stoller, like who didn't want to talk about his time at Sega anyway. He that because nope. you know to him it was not uh, there was not a lot of great memories you know associated with that time. He basically got this you know sinking ship you know just dropped in his lap and was like here deal with this you know. So people wanted to talk talk to him about that time and generally the answer was like no I'm not I'm not interested in revisiting that. And then of course now he's passed away you know rest in peace and and we lost that connection that link you know so i mean again yeah. we have to search other sources you know we have to but a lot yeah a lot of these people as they pass their stories pass too you know and the opportunities yeah, to it was just never it was yeah. never put down anywhere and mm -hmm. even the smallest thing can be an extremely interesting tidbit for oh someone. absolutely and it's we were able to talk to eric amarez dr eric amarez about mm -hmm. the duck corporation and true motion video codec you know which was a middleware okay. thing but you, and as a gamer you it was this annoying thing that you would see every time you booted up your dreamcast or your saturn you know um wouldn't give much thought to it as maybe a 15 or 18 year old but now as you know 30 to 40 somethings you know we're very interested in like Extremely. tell us more about this middleware you know that made these games tick you know like without it we wouldn't have had you know good compressed video you know so it's just fascinating though even yeah. even for me i'm kind of guilty of overlooking sometimes how interesting a game could be because uh this relates to you guys like i was watching pandas um virtuacop uh sound mm -hmm. video and I just never picked it up. I just never, like, I always just assumed it was a fairly straight arcade port. And I have the PlayStation 2 one that came out late, way later. Um, and I was just like, you never thought about it. And then mm -hmm. he did the incredible documentary on it. 
And there's so much history in just Virtua Cop on Saturn, right? There's just so much to be said, and there's so much passion and interesting information mm -hmm. that went into that port that, like, I saw it at the store the other day, and I picked it up, mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah, this is interesting. And I was playing it, and it's just like, I was seeing all these things they were referencing, and it's just like, man, this is this is awesome. I, like, you know, it, it, it heightened that experience for me so much to know what went into the creation yes. of Virtual Cop on Saturn. I think, again, that's just a testament to the work being done to document all this. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Panda is incredible oh, stuff. So. Yeah, I, I love He sets the bar. Like, like, I think my favorite one's the virtual racing one where they pretty much said, oh, yeah, we we pretty much did this from, like, we did this without the source code. And yeah, yeah. My yeah, brain I picked broke. that up, too, based on his Gave us uh, an video. arcade cab. Yeah. Yeah. It's, the historical uh, context helps enhance your enjoyment of it. Absolutely. You know, understanding. Absolutely. For yeah. years, I'd heard about that virtual racing game on Saturn just being, like, a middling thing. It had some extra stages. Never thought about it. And then and even Lindman... Uh, was kind of of the opinion we had never really sat down to play virtual uh, racing on or VR racing on uh, Saturn, and then we saw that panda documentary together, and we both picked up a copy because it's just like this, like awesome, right? Like there's so much information that we were not aware of. He would be really happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think yeah. I think uh, I think Nick will legit do a backflip. Yeah. If when he hears this. that you bought a copy of that game after I, you know what though it's true like i vicariously feel that sense of excitement for this title you know that you've overlooked you know yeah. the same thing goes with and I, nick's going to cover this at some point is uh congo on the saturn yes. jumping jack software um my shiro bro peter uh, who writes the most amazing long form editorial very similar to what you did on hg 101 back in the day Mm. He he does just these deep dive editorials, you know, where and sometimes it's a game that a lot of people don't appreciate, but he plays the damn thing all the way to the end and just squeezes every ounce of enjoyment and what what you can find in appreciating this game. And again, that was another Leyland uh, Jumping Jack software game. And they did Gen War and they were one of those like Tiger yeah. Tiger teams, you know, working with very limited uh, resources in the beginning there early on. And yeah, Congo, it came out for the Saturn and it was this licensed movie, but I mean, it was way too late when it came out, you know, but there are interesting things in that game to enjoy. And the context of his article helped heighten that enjoyment for me and helped me kind of like appreciate it from a different angle. I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, to Nick's documentary on it <laughs> because yeah, I, I mean, when I think about Congo on Saturn, I think of Shane Bettenhouse, yeah. who we used to work for EGM, and he had such a good point about it, where it's like, if you look in the manual, uh, all the enemies are female, so this guy who made this game must have gone through a very bad divorce, because <laughs> uh, like, it's all female enemies, right. and it's just like, seems like a passive aggressiveness going on here, he must be divorced or something. And I always think about that point. That's but funny. That's an interesting game. Yeah, it is, uh, it's not great. For sure. It's not a great game. No. But it's interesting. And in that there are definitely, uh, there's there's some entertainment to be had, especially since it's not, or at least when I picked it up, it wasn't an expensive game. But, no. but yeah. Yeah, I'm and, sure. And, I don't know if it's still, uh, I mean, I would hope it's not expensive now. I'm still yeah. waiting on an invite from Nick to do a WrestleMania, the arcade game. Oh, yeah. Uh, so once it gets to that episode... Uh, I'm gonna see if we can get Nick into some spandex and we'll do some wrestling. Sure, wrestling. <laughs> that's a claim, right? I have that one right on the shelf over there. That's a great game. Yeah, uh, that's they published that. Yeah, 
So uh, it's developed by Midway. Midway, right. But yeah, they, that yeah, was yes, one sir. of the good ones that they published, I think. Yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, for, for a Western developed wrestling game, it's definitely up there right. at the time uh, it came out because mm-hmm. that was when like Sculptured Software did like the WWF games right. and they were pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in Japan, you had awesome wrestling oh, yeah. games at the time. Six Man Scramble. Can read my book oh, and uh, learn all about plug it. Plug it. We'll uh, plug that. Plug that book. We'll put it in the description. Man, we're uh, yeah, yeah, it's on Amazon. So. I don't want to like run too far over on time, like. But can we talk a little bit about Bubsy? <laughs> uh, I was gonna say this is the first podcast I've ever been on where Bubsy was not oh, mentioned. God. So uh, yeah, obviously. is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, See, I love Bubsy. No, I, I could talk about Bubsy all day. Yeah, so, I, I definitely can tell from the shirt you love those. Ma- you love those mascots mascot games like i do yeah uh so i love i i generally have an uh, appreciation for mascots uh it, that's not why i love bubsy but yeah. I, I do think that like the exploration of like attitude and personality in the character mm-hmm. um in video games is very interesting for the 90s um and it certainly made them in some cases memorable in some cases not uh but i do always give them a chance because mm-hmm. if anything they're approachable platformers. So uh, even if it's Chester Cheetah or whatever, at least I can just pick up and play it, which um, right. is not always the case for a, any given game. Got to respect Cool Spot. Yeah, there were so many attempts to try to like hit on the next home run, you know, and it and so many of them were mm-hmm. failed, like one-hit wonders, you know. But there were some that I, I wished we had seen more games of, like Star or... Uh, it was Sparkster yeah, yeah. or um Oh man, I want uh, Sparkster is my all time fave. I really wish we got more of those. Mm. We got uh, one or one or two games, and then it was just like, where did that go? You know, um, of course yeah. you had the cool spots and stuff like that. It was like everybody was trying, but you're it's another Tommy T special. But you're absolutely right. I mean that <laughs> that was the what did you compare it to? Like the Battlegrounds games? You know that was back then. That was the the rage was like. If you could make a popular mascot platformer, then you you that was that was the formula for success, you know. Uh, which is it so it was a guaranteed money at least. Exactly, uh, guaranteed money, and because you got sponsorship money and you had like a recognizable. I mean, cool spots. I mean, cool spot is that is a stretch. That's man. a stretch. Like how anyone looked at the Seven Up can, it was like that red dot. Let's let's put sunglasses on it. Right, it's and it's like, good too. It's like. Yeah, well, it was a commercial. It was in the commercials first, right? I mean, didn't they also try to make a California Raisins game or something like that? Yeah, that was Capcom Capcom, on NES. That's unreleased. Unreleased. Prototypes out there, and then you have Fido Dido, right? uh, Which also got a canceled game, Mm -hmm. uh, I think. Yeah, Uh, even the President's Cat got a canceled game. That's a mascot. But I mean, like Willy Wombat on the Saturn. It's like so. So I mean, like, but for all the ones that were like that, which kind of went way under the radar bubsy was actually really prominent i remember at least i was a young kid i went to toys r us i saw bubsy on the genesis and i i enjoyed playing it uh i thought wow this is incredible (laughs) like i actually thought it was actually quite good and um i don't we never got a copy of it but i definitely played it at friends houses and stuff like that so it was so when it got you know sequels it just kind of went down (laughs) it just kept going downhill from yeah that's that is the problem, right? Because like, so, and we, yeah, we did that video on Bubsy and right. it's uh, very special to me because that's the first DF video I ever did. That's and right. It was a yeah. very a bad time in my life. And, you know, it was, it was done therapeutically, no, no joke. I mean, it was something where John 
had gotten to know me. He knew a little bit of kind of like what I was going through. And he was just like, what, what could help? And it was like, Bubsy. Nice. Uh, but, and, uh, but that first game is a labor of love and it, it's not, I think why the reason why people remember it and why it actually kind of persevered over say Oscar on the Amiga, uh, is that there was an intent of creating something from a genuine place. And it took inspiration from all these things, which, you know, Cartoon Network had just kind of started becoming a thing. And you had this very animated character with this 90s attitude. You know, Earthworm Jim came shortly after and kind of also reflects that kind of Nickelodeon type of Ren and Stimpy. Uh, whereas I think Bubsy lands a little bit in the between that. And, you know, for what it is, it's not the perfect gamery thing, but it's a, you know it's a platformer with heavy amounts of exploration, uh, fairly snappy controls, mm-hmm. um, and as long as you just don't hold the run button, much like a Sonic game, down, um, you know you can navigate that fairly vast space pretty openly, uh, which was very different for the time. Uh, it was some akin to like a Super Mario World where. Uh, in the video, we talk about how there's always a higher path, a middle path, and a lower path in that game, mm-hmm. which all provide very different sets of challenges. And so that first game is, I'd say, it's very good. Yeah. Uh, the problem was that, like, with the sequels, the original creator was no longer really involved. And there was this... That's where the cynicism comes in from a lot of people where, like, they were doing this TV pilot, which is uh something it is something. <laughs> and yeah and then you have like the sequel which uh is kind of strung together by a lot of ideas that don't really work uh and platforming is secondary mm-hmm. um and then you have bubsy 3d which you know came out after super mario 64 and uh, the things that have been said about that has been said but I will say that if you play that now, it, it is far from the worst game even oh, sure. in the PlayStation library. It's, I'd uh, play that over the crow. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's slightly annoying and whatnot, but uh, it scales up real well because it's uh, all flat-shaded exactly. uh, polygons. Yeah. So I mean, honestly, it's it, it's because it came out after Mario 64. Because like, yeah. it's true that nobody really knew how. Yeah, you had to throw the book out and learn again because a lot of people were like 2D artists, you know, 2D games. And then it's like, okay, we're yeah. doing 3D now. Everything has to be 3D. But wait, we didn't go to school for this. You know, let's let's learn as we mm-hmm. go along. And nobody really knew. And and just you know, Nintendo happened to like hit it out of the park on the first try. You know, like you yeah, know, and they said basically. basically said this is what a three D platformer should be. But a lot of people were like working right. on these games at the same time. You know, and it's like couldn't just scrap what they did, right? So you know, they put out things like Croc, yeah. you know, or they put out things like uh, you know, Bubsy and Jumping Flash, maybe. I love Jumping Flash. It's amazing. Exactly, yeah. they found a good solution to it. You know, by putting you in that mm. first person perspective and like tilting the camera yeah. down so that you could see the platform you were jumping on but you know yeah everybody kind of came up with a different method to approach it and yeah i think if bubsy 3d had been released like a year before people would not have crucified it as hard you know no then it would just have been forgotten i think right and then just like well you know it came out and then mario 64 came right. out rather than the other way exactly um but that's kind of where i think you know, for me, that first game was very special, and it's you know, got for Christmas, and I had a lot of fun with it, and I had a lot of reverence for the character. And then 
you know, the sequels came out and I acknowledged that they're not very good, but there was this weird kind of pileup on the internet happening where it was just kind of like, it's the worst games that are made, most annoying uh, characters. Like, have you played Awesome Possum at any point? Oh, it's right. like, you want to talk annoying. That's that's one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. Uh, and a lot of it is just like people watching videos or watching like, so I think yeah. I remember G4 did something back and they talked about how bad Bubsy was. And I think that really didn't help out no, that case I, at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's that same story that happened with a lot of game. I mean, you even saw it with uh, uh, Castlevania 2 mm-hmm. when uh, James Rolfe started doing his video series. Oh, yeah. AVGN. I remember, you know, and I, at the time when James Rolfe made that, and I understood like, I met him a few times and he's a fairly nice guy. And I think he's fully aware of kind of like from his standpoint, it was just, I was just making a video character kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then people took it very seriously. And yeah. I never, like, I never really get that. Like people watch it. It's like, yeah, he's not serious about these games. He's just like, he's, it's a, I mean, if you see his background, he's just like a, a uh, movie maker. So he's just making a character, you know, it's entertaining it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is some truth nuggets there here and there, but I mean, that's, it's like he like sure sure but people would treat it like a review though like and then they would like accept that carte blanche as like okay well this is a bad game and then yeah so there was this like he had to have that conversation again that like this is not a bad game it's just that a comedy character said it was bad right people didn't i guess lost the ability to read comedy uh Mm -hmm. and I think Bubsy kind of went through that a lot of that same stuff where you had a lot of these editorial contents where Mm -hmm. It was just always listed as like the worst mascot this event because it was the recognizable one. It was just something mm-hmm. that catched your eye, which is more of a, a perk of Bubsy's design than anything is that like you recognize him and they immediately know who it is. Whereas, you know, I could throw like Brian the Lion on Amiga, uh, using a lot of Amiga uh, comparisons here, but like I can throw that on screen and most people would just be like, what the fuck is that? Uh, so, you know, I think that really hurt it. And for me, I was just like, I really enjoy this character. I don't know what people are talking about here. And the Bubsy thing started long before DF Retro. Uh, I'll tell you that. Like, even when I was at Destructo and stuff, people knew me as kind of the Bubsy Defender. And <laughs> uh, uh, I've always, uh, I always worn that badge for pride. Still do. Uh, and I think, honestly, I was able to kind of resurrect that brand's value a little bit uh, with that video. Because I do remember that, like, there was suddenly activity behind it again uh, after that. I don't know. Like, it's just interesting to think about this, like, bad, like, people consider what, like, how people think what bad games are. I mean, you had, like, I think one of the big things that will perpetuate a lot of, like, the games that really got no, like, real chance is, like, like stuff like G4 saying, oh, all these gun games are trash, these anime trash games, or, you know, mm-hmm. it's like that, or, like, these, like, the the games, like, oh, the shoot 'em up, it's, 2D shoot them up two out of yeah, ten or something. Just, it's like remember 2010 ish. Like suddenly Japanese games were just blanket bad. Like like even people reviewing them officially were just like, well, Japanese developers don't know how to make games anymore. Uh, and then just like that was the argument for the game being bad. Thank you, Phil Fish, for perpetuating that a bit more. I really appreciate. <laughs> it's not that. just him. I mean, honestly, that that is the most like blatant example of something like that. But I think he was a pro. Like. If anything, he was influenced by the general conversation that was happening in video games, because this was also something that uh, was being pushed a lot by a certain engine provider in the industry, just saying, like, you know, it's archaic to make your own engines and 
do all that groundwork again and again, just use, you know, certain engines made in the West that like trivializes all that and makes all of those games look the same and feel the same. And yeah, great. Um, great. Was it the, the third person, all the shoulder, great, great. Right. Uh, uh, was it the, the background stuff? It, I don't know. It's even like, I think Japanese developers tried that as well and didn't really pan out. Like, um, I forgot the one game that was like that. Uh, what, what game was the? It had that same sort of Americanized look, and it did really, really badly. I have to look it up. I forgot the name of it. Yeah, yeah, it makes me wonder. Like, yeah, that over-the-shoulder thing. Where did that come from? Yeah, it certainly didn't come from a specific Japanese series, from a specific Japanese designer, right? So, like, you know, all these things, all that groundwork that was actually laid over in Japan, uh, was just discarded in 2010. So it was, God, that was. We're supposed to talk about Bubsy, but I'm frustrated now. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's, like... it's, it's fine. It was, it was a really bit. I think that that era, like the the really late aughts and like the early twenty, the early two thousand tens, were just really a really dark time for. Well, I wouldn't say dark time. It was like a a downturn of people that really enjoy Japanese gaming and stuff like that. It, came, it it felt more. It felt more like like a product than an actual experience. You know, like it's like oh. Right. play the new call of duty or you know play the new gears of war yeah, and, you have, and those games you aren't had, bad but still right but you had hugely inflated budgets and bloated gameplay designs that didn't jive with where they were coming from mm-hmm. in their design philosophies and they struggled during xbox 360 and ps3 to kind of what people say are catch up i mean we were like we've scaled back again now where ps4 started scaling back to a simpler design method because mm-hmm. the PS3 era is real rough now. You go back to that, it's just like, right. I never go back to that era much play games because just I don't enjoy them. And um, there was this real villainization of Japanese video games happening at that time. Uh, that's oh, yeah. when I started really working in the industry as a producer and a localizer. And I remember there was a, there was a girl from, I think she was working for Kotaku at the time, I don't think she's there anymore. Uh, but I had an interview at E3 because uh, I was working on a game that was coming out, and we had just signed. It must have been 2014 or 13, but we, we were putting games out on PS4, I think. Uh, I'm trying to kind of remember which game it was, but I was being interviewed about localizing Japanese games, and mm-hmm. I got into the room. It was a small room. Um, at E3 uh, near the toilets back by the West Hall. And I sit down and I think her name was Patricia. Uh, I might be wrong, but I think that was her name. And the first question she had for me was just like how I defended uh, all the pedophiles in Japan making video games. And I was just like, whoa. Uh, That's a bit loaded. Yeah. Is Patricia Hernandez? Just, it might be. Uh, I don't remember any last name, but I just remember that that was kind of the initial question and i was completely stumped and just kind of like i don't not really sure how this relates to anything i'm doing but uh that's kind of a lot of thing from a journalist to really talk about i don't know like to me it's like as as someone that i guess i view as a journalist quote unquote i but i I feel that stuff like that is loaded like you should allow the person to tell their own story and ask questions about it it's like it's a bit like i don't know to me it's like i don't know like what do you do with that question it's like uh uh, well, I, yeah, I, I mean, couldn't even answer it until like it was just it, it was just it was straight up just these kinds of questions. It was just kind of like, you know, very culturally pointed questions about things that I wasn't even like, you know, 
I don't know. Like, I really don't know how this relates to what I'm working on, but uh, that sounds bad. And, like, I, I couldn't answer them. Uh, and I just remember that that was a general kind of I'm not saying this like for this person to ask those questions, you know, at the time it was just that's how people viewed all this. It was just like our uh, Japan was this archaic and like, it's like the weird outdated. Japanese games, right? With it the, was just the weird games, like, oh my making, gosh. yeah. Right. And it's like, and then if you ask for example, it was always kind of the same stuff, it was like on Echambara or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just like, well, that's one game. And yeah, I guess that does have some of these aspects you're bringing up. Uh, I'm not here. I don't work on that game. No, uh, uh, exactly. And it's just like, I don't know. It seems like with the rise of anime in the West, that sort of mentality has shifted and changed, which I was very happy about seeing that sort of renaissance in that way, where now we're getting all these Japanese style games and everyone's loves it. You're getting stuff like Steins Gate and stuff. And it's just like, amazing game stuff western indie games were going through a bit of a like a a period of growth and you know Mm -hmm. innovation which they hadn't enjoyed for a while you know it had been like a stigma that western games were not as innovative as japanese games so they kind of got they kind of got the head start and the jump on us and so then there was this ego you know where it was like okay we're innovating and we're we're creating you know new experiences and japan has stagnated and you guys are just doing recycling the same thing over and over again but I yeah. mean, he, pride c- comes before the fall and, you know, everything goes in seasons and cycles. And of course, you know, several Japanese developers are putting out new and innovative game experiences. You know, it goes in cycles, you know, and, and sometimes and they were back then, too. That's the frustrating part. It's just that you weren't seeing them on a locked device like PS3 where, right. you know, the support for something like that wasn't there anymore because they were looking for, you know, the Naughty Dog level of games to promote. Right. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, this changed with the PS4, and mm-hmm. and now we were kind of regressing a bit with that. I feel, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, I, I just feel like a lot of the stuff that Sony's putting out is sort of the same over-the-shoulder third-person mm-hmm. story-driven narrative, orchestra mm-hmm. soundtrack, and it's like <laughs> right? it's like I mean, like I said, I don't want to, I don't like knocking games because I I know there's value in everything, but it's okay. like I, it's like I don't, I feel like I'm playing the same thing, even like even like Ratchet and Clank. It's still technically an over-the-shoulder, yeah. third-person shooter, story-driven narrative sort of thing. It's homogenized, is what it is. Yeah. It's like, it, uh, and that's I feel the thing. So too. And I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way. It just is. It's let's be honest. The game industry is so much about the money. It's so much about the shareholders. It's so much about being profitable. And when you can continue to churn out something that is safe and you know is going to sell. From a business standpoint, it's hard to go the other way. You know what I mean? Mm. But the fact is, video games are art, as cliche as that sounds, as whether people want to accept that or not. I mean, video games, especially for the people making them, you know, mm. it's art. And of course, um, Nick said it best in his most recent uh, Sega breakdown videos that, you know, you know, art is crushed by capitalism, you know? Yep. That's that's the sto- age-old story, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about music or if we're talking about Andy Warhol. It, mm. it just and it often crushes the spirit of artists, you know? Video games are a medium to express several things, you know, stories, yeah. uh, emotions, music. It is a medium for delivering art. Yeah. You know, it is art, you know? But, yeah, it's been homogenized by the industry for sure. And, I mean... We saw that coming. That was, you know, it was a build. You know, the, the teams get bigger, the budgets get bigger, the, you know, yep. and um, 
now it's all crumbling again. I looked at a shelf of, of Switch games, you know, just like a massive, at, at one of the uh, retro game traders in, mm. in uh, Portland. I was like, they had, they stuck their claim to like having every game in stock. You know, I was just like, well, everything here that I actually want are all like indie games, mm -hmm. you know, published by small little mom and pop publishers. Uh, like Limited Run, you know, I mean, even though you guys are pretty big for what you do, still small on by comparison you oh know? yeah yeah um and and it's like everything here that's like creative and and innovative is like done by small little indie devs you know because that's where the art is still happening you know like and 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 every experience can you know you can get a bunch of different crazy risk-taking experiences oh yeah know? i mean credit to limit run on this too because like when i joined you know it's easy to look at limit run and kind of think of the larger releases that they have done parking around for people. And we just did Persona, for example. Yeah, right. no, I was, was going to bring that up. I think it's interesting that now studios are relying on you guys to release some of those games, those games physically. Yeah, yeah. In a way. Mm -hmm. It's direct consumer and good consumer relations, right? So, mm -hmm. but also, you know, I had projects I wanted to do as a producer and slash I mean, designer. And one of the ones that, you know, they let me do, and that's been announced, is our set which is the CDI Zelda. Right. Super yeah. excited for that. I am yeah, ready. Yes. Day one, uh, going to play that. <laughs> that looks so good. Uh, and that was just something I came in the door with, you know, with uh, Seth Fulkerson, who's the developer of it and the lead designer. And it was just, you know, for Limited Run to look at that, it's like, you want to do a spiritual successor to a CDI game? And it's yeah. like, you know, for a company, they didn't need to, you know, they could well be past that in in some mm -hmm. ways but you know josh um, fairhurst was just like this is an awesome idea the, the execution mm -hmm. is awesome i i want to be involved with this so mm -hmm. even you know even there there's still an opportunity to do art because like yes. you said you know for me it is a medium to do art and this is a you know it's a game with hand-drawn backgrounds and then cutscenes. Uh, done the same way that it was done on the CDI. And uh, mm -hmm. it's kind of like uh, taking the good ideas of what they were trying to do at the time and actually executing them on mm -hmm. hardware that can't do it. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 in that indie space that you are going to see that kind of exploration of video games, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, with the larger ones, you're mostly just going to see a very narrative-driven action game mm -hmm. with the tropes that you expect. And see, we felt like that mid '90s Sega, especially with the Saturn and stuff, had a lot of parallels to like indie yeah, development because did. because they had come from the pinnacle of 2D gaming, and then there was this new frontier. It had been flipped on its head, and everybody had to do 3D, right? Yeah. So then it's almost like, okay, since we don't have the formula for success yet, let's throw things at the wall and see what sticks. You know, let's try different stuff. And in that way, uh, they took a lot of risks, and there were a lot of new and innovative uh, gaming experiences and a lot of art you know, in the process, like nights. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, again, coming back to the the mascot thing, you yeah. know, Saturn needed a mascot, and they didn't have Sonic, so they're like, okay. Let's uh, have this be our emblem, you know, for the and and again, that game is very artistic. Oh yeah, for um, sure. It it's very innovative. It uh, you know, and it's their take on a three D, not necessarily platform, but a, what they were able to do and put those constraints, those control constraints on it, so that it worked in three yeah. D. You know, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that you had with the Saturn. It's one of the reasons why I love that fifth generation so much because. Same. 
so much new stuff was being tried, you know, and, and they hadn't really settled yet. It, it, the, the dust hadn't settled and people hadn't, companies hadn't settled either. Unfortunately, Dave, there's know. no profits and risks, so. That is true. Yeah, risk is not a great thing. Insurance companies don't like it. Stockholders don't Game like companies, it. You know? Well, at least big majority yeah. ones don't like it. Uh, some of them are taking a little bit more risks. Like I know I know Capcom's been good at doing yeah. some low-cut heel leases, and I know uh, Square Enix has been doing some stuff like... Uh, like some I am Satsuna and the was it was the last one that they came oh out that's with a them? while ago now but yeah the, uh, whatever the, the name of it, the uh they're like, but they do like little three D titles like the square the, the triangle strategy game like mm -hmm. so it's coming back a little bit but it's not as big with especially some Western companies I mean if the game industry as a whole were to experience another large scale disruption like uh moving from 2d to 3d you know yeah. um it, we might see that you know on a, on a larger scale we might see but again right now um most companies are playing it safe i feel you know oh because i mean the industry's crumbling i mean right mm -hmm. now as we're talking at least you know mm -hmm. layoffs every week and mm -hmm. because of the pandemic everyone just overhired and mm -hmm. we're, we're getting to a point of oversaturation on these larger productions so it's yeah. just it's, it's a hard time to be in video games right now it's and sad like that's, that's, i'm seeing like every other person that i follow is like oh laid off from x company laid off i'm looking for right. work and it's like it's oh horrible. man yeah it's rough so yeah well we're coming up on time but uh uh, last question for you, Audi, is um, something I wanted to ask you based on some of the things I've heard you say about self-introspection. You're thinking about how you feel about yourself, how you've come to feel about yourself, and how you're growing. Like In terms of growth and leaving some kind of indelible mark or legacy, I guess, if you want to use that word, like what would you like to accomplish long-term and what would you like to leave behind? Oh, man. Uh, even if it's like a small thing, I'm just curious, like, yeah. or is that not even something that you've completely, uh, so I'm, I grew up in Norway and there's, there's a social norm there. It's just like, everyone's the same. No one's special. And I very much kind of grew up under that kind of mantra that like, you know, we're all fairly equal. And I think so. And generally my, like, you know, I went through a pretty bad period uh, in the 2010s where i just mm -hmm. i felt like i had peaked and i had nothing left to provide uh mm -hmm. i had done what i could personally to like well i tried to elevate video game music to a point where people respected but other people there's always people that do a much better job than me and that's totally fine that's the point mm -hmm. uh, opening a door is what i want to do but other people can go through that door and run with it um generally what I always wanted to and what still kind of stands as what I want to accomplish is that I just want, once I'm gone, I just want people to reflect and say like, well, I was happy I met him. Mm -hmm. I was happy that I got to meet him and, you know, I got something out of it. Uh, and that's kind of how I've approached video games that I worked on as well. It's just, I really wanted, you know, we talked about our set just now, which is mm -hmm. a game that I've been involved with design and, uh producing and writing for so i've been very involved with that uh it's been many many years since i was that involved with a video game and it's seth the lead developer it's his very first video game and basically my whole thing for him was generally when people talk about getting into video games and working on them it's this nightmare of logistics and failure and all this and i just told him like i just want I just want to make sure that like 
no matter what story you tell after all this, I, I want the story to be, but at least I had a good time working with that guy. And uh, it's a simple kind of trivial thing, I guess, but I just, I really want to make sure that people have a wonderful time uh, playing a game I worked on, having mm-hmm. a conversation with me, or just that they don't leave with some sort of regret that like, ah, that guy was kind of weird, <laughs> uh, which, you know, uh, sometimes I probably am. Because uh, I, keep I mean, we're all weird here. We're not we're not going to throw um, stones in glass houses on this podcast. Yeah, yeah but I, I think the value I have in life is just that I'm I'm fairly good at making people laugh, and I'm very good at uh, telling a story generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just want to leave behind a very simple story of myself being someone that people appreciated having met and mm-hmm. having worked with, or having enjoyed a product that I put out, be it a book, a game, or what have you. Uh, I have very, uh, very little in the way of ego or any sort of uh, inspirational words. Mm-hmm. I just have this desire that uh, the most important to me was just that you had a good time. And if you did, I'm happy. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and we and I have to and I, I'm not going to speak for Dave, but I definitely could say that you can we do appreciate me. everything that you've worked. <laughs> uh, yeah, we and I imagine we just you'd say the exact same thing. We appreciate everything you've worked on, everything you've accomplished, and of course, everything that you've talked with us about and hung out and talked with us with. So that's oh yeah, we really appreciate, oh, appreciate you. That. You're a cool dude, and oh, I'm gl- <laughs> I'm personally glad that we we have you in our lives. We're able to talk to you. Absolutely. Like I mean, I consider myself lucky that I now have a relationship with you. Uh, you great guy. I mean, John, you guys are so down to earth and uh, so easy to talk to, and you know, are willing to let us ask questions and you have a lot of uh, history and expertise to draw from. So, I mean, to us, it's very invaluable, you know, and it's a very important that we preserve these, these stories and that we uh, are able to pass this stuff on to our listeners too. So I'm, we're really thankful to you for talking with us for three hours. Yeah, Thank I you. really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. And I mean, yeah, when it comes to John Lemon as well, yeah, I mean, that's, one of the reasons why we're such close friends is that yes. I think we share a lot of that mentality. And I mean, we're very human uh, in yeah. our different ways. So uh, I really enjoy that aspect of people. It's just uh, vulnerability is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I feel that it's what yeah. allows you to kind of break down walls and, and build right. relationships. It's the most wonderful thing that I've experienced in my time doing this with Shiro is just building relationships and meeting new people, you know? Yeah, that's the most important part of it. I can't wait to see you again next year at PRGE or I don't know, maybe at some somewhere else we'll run into Hopefully you. Hopefully sooner sure. somewhere, yeah. right? But uh, Pat might have plans to go to Gamescom. I don't know. You still do that every year? Yeah, I still go to Gamescom. Yeah. Uh, go there every year. And uh, hopefully I'm, I'm talking with PRGE now, but I'm hoping that the very first DF Retro panel could happen to PUG with both me and John in person. That so would be it's amazing. Yeah, we will be front row, front row, first person there. <laughs> Dave, so, I'm, I'm, I'll speak for Dave on this one. That's right. Me and me and him front row, right there. I'll bring my popcorn. Guys, so yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see how you know. By all means, put the request in towards Purge. Uh, Definitely. Let them know that you want me and John there, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens by the, this time next year. But uh, I'm hopeful that that could be the venue for our first light panel together. Well, I'll talk to Gerald about it right now. I'll send him a message. Oh, please do. I'll be like, "Hey, you've got to get these guys on." You know? Yeah, yeah. And, we're, and we're in talks about maybe doing a Sega room. So if you guys want to chill there too, we'll figure something oh, out. 
I'm sure if if John if John could be flown in for this event, I think uh, mm-hmm. the idea would be to maximize mm-hmm. our time there and yeah. do as many things we could with as many partners. So uh, I'm hoping we could make because I think Purge is the perfect place for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, it, it is my favorite retro game convention, uh, and uh, by saying that, if any of the others are listening <laughs> right. and want to. But that's a test, yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm on Expo, where are you at? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, so far, my my greatest experiences in the retro gaming space, uh, when it comes to conventions, has been Purge. It's just a mm-hmm. great, great event. A lot of fun. I really enjoy it. It was wonderful meeting you there in person, and uh, it's, been, <laughs> yeah. it's been great having you on the cast. And for everyone listening, uh, this has been Saturn Dave. Trainoco and uh, Audi reminding you that you must play your Sega Saturn. Play Sega Saturn. And we will catch you guys later. Thanks for listening. Shoot!